star of the Harry Popkin production, my dear secretary, a United Artists release last week told us in person, supper clubbers with Christmas around the corner, I'm stocking up on Chesterfields. I know my friends will like them because they're milder and satisfying. It's my secret friend. December 8th, 1947, Los Angeles, California. We're at the corner of Jilson Street and Atlantic Boulevard at the opening of the first successful self-service gas station in the country. Owner Frank Ulrich sold over 500,000 gallons of gasoline in the station's first month. His slogan? Save five cents. Serve yourself. Why pay more? Inflation was on everyone's mind. Signing on the radio is NBC's News of the World. This is Morgan Beatty speaking for Alka-Seltzer, bringing you news of the world. Tonight, Washington, look out inflation, both parties are after you. London, Molotov spurns history, repeats himself again. Rome, now it's Italy's turn to take on the communists. Los Angeles, the battle of the birth rate. Now a brief message from Tom Moore. Are you starting the week with a miserable cold? Chances are you have plenty of company. For records show that more people catch cold on Monday than on any other day of the week. Both broadcasting and the United States are rapidly expanding, but not without growing pains. In the year after VJ Day, more than five million struck for better wages and benefits. It debilitated key sectors of the economy and stifled production. Slow to appear consumer goods frustrated Americans who wanted items they'd forsaken during the war. As inflation exploded, it led to the Taft-Hartley Act, limiting the power of labor unions. President Truman was seemingly at odds with Congress over every domestic policy, and his approval rating sank to 32 percent. Dissolve two Alka-Seltzer tablets in a quarter glass of warm water and use this as a cargo. Meanwhile, America's war debt topped $240 billion. The nation was expected to have the largest hand in rebuilding Europe. News outlets reported that citizens needed to resume sacrifices they made during the war. People balked, so Congress reminded them that the friction could allow communists to take over the world. The House Committee on Un-American Activities was gaining power. The Republican High Command has now developed an anti-inflation program to put before the 80th Congress and the country. Representative Jesse Wolcott of Michigan, chairman of the Spark Plug Banking Committee, released it today. He proposed to lower the antitrust law barriers just far enough to permit whole industries to agree to lower the cost of living. Otherwise, they'd be tripped up on the Sherman statutes for fixing prices. That's the basic Wolcott idea, as opposed to the basic Truman suggestion that he be given a big stick in the shape of authority to ration scarce goods and control prices, a club the president would use only in case prices or scarcities got out of hand. In addition, Mr. Wolcott proposes that the president be given the right, as he himself has suggested, to control exports, to balance them against the need for domestic stability. The Wolcott plan also calls for an increase to 40% in gold reserves in banks, instead of the special pyramid type of reserve control proposed by Mariner S. Eccles, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. In New York today, Senator Taft hinted that the Republicans would lead strongly on a series of anti-inflation planks that include voluntary savings campaigns, limitations on exports, and higher productivity among workers. Rationing, he said, should not be brought back unless absolutely necessary, although the senator added there will be a shortage of meat next spring that might lead to rationing. In that case, two things should happen in his view. First, we should ration other countries before we ration ourselves, and second, we should adopt the British system, ration by controlling the amount of money a housewife can spend on meat rather than by coupon. The 1947-48 season had the largest audience in radio history. ABC, CBS, Mutual and NBC added nearly 150 affiliates. 
Net worth revenue, top $200 million. Homes with radios jumped 6%, auto radios 29%. We're tuning into News of the World on one of the 12 million AM car radios in the U.S. Allen, the Illinois Republican, who himself opposes the $590 million message, told reporters there would not be more than 75 votes against final passage of aid to France, Italy, and Austria, possibly on Wednesday. America's highways and toll roads were growing, just like the country's population. Nearly 11 million babies had been born in the U.S. since 1945. Even with the labor strikes, post-war production was about to lead to an explosion in automobile sales. The number of gas stations would follow. Tonight, we will too. If you ever plans to motor west, travel my way, take the highway, that's the best. Get your kicks on Route 66. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 118. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we hit the road with part one of an Americana miniseries. Gas up with some of radio's best and examine shows taking place at America's filling stations. Get your kicks on Route 66. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is Nat King Cole's famous version of Get Your Kicks on Route 66. It was composed by Bobby Troop, who found inspiration with his wife during a 1941 cross-country trip. Nat Cole recorded this version in 1946. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. Burning Gotham, the new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 New York City, is on its way. Go to burninggotham.com for teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Now, folks, all I know is just what little news I read every day in the papers. Everybody's talking about what's the matter with this country and what the country needs. What this country needs worse than anything else is a place to park your car. What our big cities need is another orange in these orange age stands. Mm-hmm. 
the year 1900, the United States had 4,000 cars and 20 million horses. Gasoline was still considered a waste byproduct from making kerosene. At depots on the edge of town, fuel was transferred from large storage tanks into glass or metal dispensers, and then poured by hand. Pioneering motorists had to take a bucket to their general, hardware, drugstore, or local refinery. It was inconvenient and dangerous. Although when the first gas pump was invented five years later, the U.S. was manufacturing 25,000 cars, things picked up in 1908 with Henry Ford's Model T. It was the first affordable car, mass-produced on moving assembly lines with interchangeable parts. Dealers, grocers, hardware stores, and other businesses installed pumps out front, selling gas at the curbside. By 1910, there were more than a half million cars on American roads. The following year, the U.S. Supreme Court declared John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil a monopoly. Its breakup boosted gas station growth. The first true gas stations appeared during the 1910s in an effort to meet petroleum demands. In 1913, the Gulf Refining Company opened the nation's first drive-up service station in Pittsburgh. On the first day, they sold 30 gallons of gas for 27 cents per gallon. The station became known for its free roadmaps. Many early stations were shacks with wood or corrugated metal exteriors. More substantial designs featured metal panels, steel windows, and limited ornament. They were utilitarian buildings used for storage, offices, and a station attendant. Pumps were placed immediately adjacent to the structure, or separated on the lot by a driveway where cars parked to refuel. Seven years later, Pittsburgh would be the site of radio history when KDKA broadcast the election returns of 1920. This is KDKA of the Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company in East Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We shall now broadcast the election returns. <coughs> in the early 1920s, oil companies, distributors, and entrepreneurs were building stations in growing residential communities. Lubrication and maintenance was added to the menu. As business increased, so did local complaints about the intrusion. However, the automobile was here to stay. In response, the industry made stations look less like shacks and more like houses. They now had consumer areas, restrooms, and service bays. In 1929, there were more than 120,000 filling stations, totaling nearly $2 billion in sales.
October 24, 1929, the same day the U.S. stock market lost 11% at the opening bell, the Fleischmann Yeast Hour premiered on NBC at 8 p.m. It starred the man who would go on to become the country's first iconic radio pop star, Rudy Valley. Even as the stock market collapsed, the Galvin Manufacturing Corporation marketed an auto receiver for $130. In 1931, Plymouth made a sedan equipped with a Philco radio for no extra cost. But in 1932, sales of new cars fell by 75%. Automakers lost $191 million. Half closed down. It caused the luxury market to virtually disappear. The lower price segment of sales grew to 80% in four years. Uh, thank you, Mr. Thorgerson. That's pretty good from a man who doesn't even know me. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jack Benny talking and making my first appearance on the air professionally. By that I mean I'm finally getting paid, which of course will be a great relief to my creditors. On the evening of May 2nd, 1932, you could have gassed up at a filling station, turned on your radio to NBC, and heard Jack Benny debut for Canada Dry Ginger Ale. You'd also have paid the new gas tax, one cent per gallon. A great many filling station workers would spend the next generation listening to Benny. In the early 1930s, gas stations grew 40%. Many of these new stations were done in a low-maintenance box style. They featured flat roofs with either stucco, terracotta, steel, or glass exteriors. Thanks to advances in electricity, they also had scientifically designed lighting schemes, making them familiar and easy to spot. That was important. There were now millions of cars on the road, and auto technology was rapidly expanding. Texaco greets you from New York. The more than 45,000 Texaco dealers from coast to coast welcome you to another Texaco Star Theater performance on Broadway, heart of the World Theater. Tonight they present The Criminal Code, starring Burgess Meredith and Arthur Byron, with Helen Clare and a distinguished Broadway cast. In the late 1930s, push-button AM radios became a car standard, and by the summer of 1939, more than 80% of the United States was covered by radio. Here is a message of interest from your Texaco dealer. Ever been to an airport? Petroleum companies were one of radio's major advertisers. Keeping tuned on long car rides was becoming a regular part of life. And it was with the idea of capturing something like this smoothness of flight for your car, the Texaco engineers developed SkyChief, Texaco's new premium gasoline. And with SkyChief in the tank, you'll agree that they've given you just about the nearest thing to it in ground travel. Press the starter and you're off with a rush of power. Shifting from first to second to high. My name is Richard Lamparski, and as I promised you a couple of months ago when Al Hodge was on this program as Captain Video, he'd come back and be the Green Hornet. So thanks very much. That was my Do you pleasure. feel more like the Green Hornet today? I am not really sure what I feel like today. <laughs> Probably you, a little of both. You were the first, right? The first Green Hornet, that's correct. Which began in 1936? 1936. And uh, you were on until how long? Until I went in the service. The Green Hornet.
He hunts the biggest of all game, public enemies that even the G-men cannot reach. The Green Hornet. The Green Hornet was one of radio's best-known juvenile shows. Created by George W. Trendle, it debuted on January 31, 1936 over WXYZ in Detroit. It became one of three major programs, along with the Lone Ranger and Challenge of the Yukon, to originate from the station. Title character Britt Reed was the great-nephew of the Lone Ranger. He worked as a newspaper publisher by day and operated as a vigilante by night. The Green Hornet was originally portrayed by Al Hodge. And then I think the program itself went on until around 1951 or 52 after that. I did go back, though, after I was a charge in the service and did it for about five or six months before I came to New York. From you did the title role again? Yes, I did. Was it always done from Detroit? Yes, always. Right to the end? Right to the very end. Yeah, I remember it very well on WXYZ, which would be the Blue Network or ABC, yes, I guess, now. that's right. Well, as you well know, of course, it was the home of the Lone Ranger. And yes, and Sergeant the, Preston. That's right, the... Challenge of the Yukon. Who was Sergeant Preston? I don't know. Well, Sergeant Preston originally was Paul Sutton. His sidekick, Cato, was a master chemist who used gas guns and smoke screens. Cato was also an expert in the secrets of Far Eastern fighting techniques. This episode, not one cent for tribute, was originally the eighth in the series. The adventure, not one cent for tribute. The events and characters depicted in this drama are fictitious. Any similarity to actual persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental. the gas station on the next corner, Kruger? Not that one, Sully. Can't you see how much he's charging for gas? That was okay. The one we want around the next corner. Which way? Turn left. There's the place. Here it goes! I guess we won't have no more trouble with that guy. Not now, Slago. Drink up, boys. You sure the bomb did a good job? I was watching through the rearview mirror, Slago. Kroger tossed that pineapple right into the middle of the gas pump. Don't worry, boss. You can pick up what's left of the place with an eyedropper. That's fine. From now on, he'll pay protection to along with the rest. You've got a sweet racket, Slago. Sure. Every gas station in the city is kicking in. They're paying for protection, Sally. I make sure nothing happens to them. And if they don't pay... They run into trouble like tonight. You were careful not to let anyone see you? We went by too fast, Wash. Yeah, we used the stolen car. This is a couple of blocks further on. The only guy that has an idea of us is the guy we bombed. Catch him talking. Besides, he don't know for sure. Or he's got a suspicion. Right. A guy who's scared don't make a good witness. You need more than suspicions for proof. You said it, boss. As for the police... They can't prove a thing when they ain't got witnesses. Miss Case, get the district attorney on the phone for me. Have Laura here when I'm through talking. Yes, Mr. Reed. Snap it up. Well, it looks like a three-alarm fire the way he's burning up. Sally, get the district attorney on the wire. And tell Lowry to stop cutting out paper dolls and come in here on the double. Mr. Reed's in a hurry. And I do mean hurry. I wonder what it is this time. 
Last week she was turning out scorching editorials on dangerous drivers and how they were a menace on the city streets. Yes, Mr. Reed? Get me all the information we have on the recent gas station accident. Now bring it to me as soon as you get it. Or is that the district attorney? Mr. Reed's office? Just a moment. Yes, Mr. Reed, it's the district attorney. I'll switch him on your wire. I have it. Get busy on that list. Hello. Hello, let me have the board. Don't tell me, Casey. The boss is going to make me the love born editor. You'd do better at a race track, Lowry. Hello, Morg? Morg? Did somebody die? Not that, Morg, silly. The place where we keep all the back copies of the Sentinel. Oh, no, Casey. You're kidding me. If there's any information he wants, I have it at my fingertips. Listen, Miss Case. Mr. Reed wants all the information you have about recent gas station accidents. That's it, huh? I don't care how you get them. Well, check with the police. Go through your back copies. Casey, that last gas station that was blown up was a shambles. Wreck pumps, gasoline. I never saw such a mess. It doesn't take a reporter to see that. Do I detect a note of sarcasm in that last crack? You do. Honestly, Lowry, it's an open secret who's back of all these bombings and fires. Really? Please, let's who. Tell me something I don't know, Casey. Then why don't your stories say so? Listen, Casey. Sure, Slagle controls the gas stations in this town. He's got a protection racket that brings in a cent on every gallon. Then why don't you... But the Sentinel can't print that. There's no proof. We'd be sued from here to Christmas. Uh, My idea of heaven would be someplace where a newspaper can print what everybody knows is true, even though it can't be proved. Yeah, but this place isn't heaven. Not while Slagle is here. Well, maybe the district attorney can do something. I've been talking to him while I just finished. Did he have anything, Mr. Reed? Not a thing, Miss Cage. How about that last bombing, boss? Yeah, it's the same story all over again, Laura. Suspicions with no proof. Even the owner of that gas station refuses to talk. And meanwhile, that snake Slagle keeps raking in all the cash he can get his grabbing hands on. There's one consolation, Mr. Reed. Yeah, Casey? None that I know of, Miss Casey. Well, what I mean is, Slagle's only taking money from gas stations. Well? One cent difference in the price of gasoline isn't going to affect people so much. Miss Case, you're making the same mistake that others do. The price of gasoline is as important as any other. But suppose Slagle's lack of a meat and vegetable market. Well, people wouldn't be able to get the right kind or amount of food. Now, you can't compare... It's practically food. the same thing. Keep your ears open, Casey. Here's where you get a lesson in simple economics. Meat and vegetable markets use trucks in their business. Yes. They have to pay the same higher price for gasoline than Slagle forces from everyone else. But a cent a gallon... Well, that adds up. If they spend more for gasoline, they have to make it up somewhere else. In other words, if their expenses go up, they have to charge the public more for the food they're selling. You'll hit it, boss, and the same goes for every family that uses a car. Exactly. Every cent they have to spend for gas means one cent less to buy milk and eggs and fresh vegetables for the family table. Of course. I didn't stop to think. More people did think, Miss Case. Racketeers like Slagle would never get started. Too late for that now. Slagle's got the gas stations tied up tighter than Houdini. That's why I called you. We're going after every one of those gasoline dealers. Why, boss? If we can find one man who'll act as witness against Slagle, that's all the district attorney will need. They're sending the names up from the morgue, Mr. Reed. Go after them, Lowry. Take Clicker Benny with you. Okay. We ought to be able to convince somebody that he's smart to act as a witness. Lowry and Clicker Benny made the rounds of the gas stations which had recently had accidents. WXYZ was one of four flagship mutual stations, originally born out of an agreement to program swap with New York's WOR, Cincinnati's WLW, and Chicago's WGN. In 1936, Mutual obtained coast-to-coast status when they picked up the Don Lee chain of West Coast stations. By the time this version of the episode was rebroadcast on June 13, 1939, the Green Hornet was running nationally. Slagle's responsible, all right. There's no doubt about that. 
Only all the victims claim they saw nobody, heard nothing, and know nothing. I still say they're scared. How about this guy here? What's his name? Jennings. Okay, watch me work. It'd be about time. Nothing's worked so far. He isn't out here. Must be inside the station. Yes, sir. You want some gas? Mr. Jennings? That's right. If I didn't hear you, I was busy checking over the business I've been doing. How is business? Could be better. Who wants to know? Paying one cent tribute and every gallon to Slagle cuts into the province, doesn't it? Listen, mister, you here to buy gasoline or what? Hold on, Mr. Jennings. We don't mean to be rude. If you want gas, I'll sell it. If you don't, clear out. You don't understand. We're from the Daily Sentinel. Sure. He does the reporting and I take the pictures. How would you like your picture in the papers, Mr. Jennings? My picture? Yeah, the Sentinel's running a series on gas station operators. We want to tell our readers... Don't kid me. About some of our late... Huh? You heard what I said. You ain't fooling me with that serious stuff. You hear about Bat Slagle, ain't you? Nice work, Lowry. Okay, Jennings. I won't stall. How about it? You know plenty about the way Slagle works. Me? Not a thing. I suppose Slagle didn't wreck your place last month. Where'd you get that idea? It, it was an accident. The gas tank exploded. Oh, Mr. Jennings, don't hold out on us. Come on, Jennings. You know it was Slagle. Hand it on him and you'll be a hero. Yeah, I'd rather be alive. But I... Besides, I... it wouldn't do any good anyway. I didn't see nothing. You were here when it happened, weren't you? Sure, but I didn't see anybody. I tell you, it was an accident. See, an accident. Just like the rest of them. Afraid to talk. Listen, you. Take a tip and get out of here before I get mad. Yeah. Looks to me as if all of you are yellow. I'm warning you to get out. Letting Slagle make monkeys of you. Yellow as a chrysanthemum. Are you... Oh. Uh-oh. Now get out and stay out. Don't come around again looking for a story. You'll get another poke in the jaw. The only result of sending you and Miss Binney out is that bruise on your chin. Oh, the big jellyfish smacked me when I wasn't looking. Five months after this episode aired, the Green Hornet joined NBC's Blue Network. The show remained on the network after it was divested and became ABC, continuing all the way until December 5th, 1952. That had enormous popularity in the Midwest because uh, I remember the Lone Ranger was on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Uh, it was a Tuesday or Thursday that the Green Hornet the Green was on. Heart, the Green Hornet was on both days, Tuesday and Thursday, so we got a strip at the same time, 7.30. That was a half hour. I That's right. That. With all this talk of gas station bombings, it seems that before we hit the road, we better visit a doctor. Hollywood, California, we present a new Dr. Christian drama called Between Office Hours, starring Gene Hersholt in the role of the popular Dr. Christian, presented for your pleasure by the Cheesebro Manufacturing Company, owners of the trademark Vaseline, and producers of Vaseline Petroleum Jelly, Vaseline Hair Tonic, and other famous Vaseline specialties. We all know that a small boy has a way of getting himself into trouble. Dr. Christian was created for Gene Hersholt after his role in the 1936 film The Country Doctor. Hersholt played Alan Roy Defoe, the physician who became famous for delivering quintuplets. 
He couldn't get the rights to use Defoe's name on the air, so Herschel created his own character. Christian was chosen because of Hans Christian Andersen, as well as Herschel's Danish heritage. The show debuted on November 7, 1937, and doubled its listenership in each of the first three years. Entitled Between Office Hours, the May 22, 1940 episode featured Lou Merrill. At times, nurse Judy Price was played by film actress Rosemary DeCamp and radio legend Lorene Tuttle. You played the nurse on the Dr. Christian show for yes, a while. Yes, uh, Judy Price. Judy Price. Was that before or after Rosemary DeCamp came in on It was after. She got very busy in the picture mm-hmm. business, so she um, sort of resigned for a while. But she came back. I just took over while she was busy, and then she came back. But that was a lovely thing to do. Jean Herschel was a fabulous man. Lovely to any with. of a hundred ordinary little injuries. Vaseline jelly is economical. It does the work of much more expensive preparations, yet costs only 10 cents a jar. Why pay more when Vaseline jelly does the job so well? There goes the curtain music, which tells us the play is about to begin. The title of the play is Between Office Hours, and Gene Hersholt's supporting cast includes red-headed Rosemary DeCamp as Judy Price, the doctor's secretary, Lou Merrill as Bruiser Burns, a wrestler and underworld character, and George Lewis as Roy Davis, who owns the drugstore and courts Judy in his time off. But instead of the usual peaceful River's End scene with which our stories generally open, tonight's drama begins on a note of urgencies, even panic with the action starting at a gas station not many miles away, where two men sit in the back seat of a parked car, the driver attentive at the wheel, while inside the station in a telephone booth, another man shouts at the operator. Hello? Hello? Operator, what's the matter? That's the second time you've cut me off from River's End. I don't know, I just asked for a doctor. Any doctor. All right, then give me a hospital. Hello. Hello. Listen, operator, I can't fool him any longer. Get the word along there's an emergency case coming in and to have a doctor ready, will you? Thanks. All right, get going. Hey, ain't we most to center city? Couple of hours yet, bruiser. And aren't you? I thought fighters were used to getting bumps. Sure, sure, I'm used to getting bumps. I ain't kicking, am I? Well, we'll be in River's End in a few minutes. And the doc there will take a look at it. Maybe he can put something on it till you get uh, where you're going. Well, how do you know there is a doc in World's End, or whatever you call it? I telephoned just now in the gas station. There's a doctor, a hospital, the whole work. Hospital? I ain't going to no hospital, You're see? going where we take you. Uh, you're getting awful upset about a couple of pence fingers, ain't you, Bill? We have to stop. We can have the bruiser there before midnight, and then they can worry about him. Yeah, I know. But he's still in our hey, charge. what's the matter? You think there's something bad the matter with me digits? You think they're broke or something, huh? I just want to get him wrapped up for you, bruiser. The doc will put some nice salve on him. Will he? It won't smart, will it, to like that? No, bruiser, it ain't gonna hurt. Now sit back and be quiet like a nice guy till we get to River's End. Okay. Okay. But we better be getting the money fast, see?
Rivers End Hospital. Guess this must be it. You sit here quiet now with Tim for a minute, Bruiser, while I tell the doc you're coming. Okay, okay. But tell him no funny business now, Steve. Sure, sure. He'll understand. Good evening. Good evening. Is, uh, is the doctor here? I telephoned. Oh, yes, we got your message. Dr. Christian's in his office. Come right this way, please. Thank He's you. He's been waiting here at the hospital till you came. Dr. Christian, the, uh, the people who phoned are here. Uh, bring them in. Are you, uh, are you the patient? No, I'm not, Doc. I come in ahead of time to sort of explain. You see, it's this way, Doc. My pal and I, outside there, are guards. Guards? Yeah, and we're taking the bruiser to the asylum over at Center City. The, the bruiser? That's it. Bruiser Burns. You must have read about him. The wrestler, the turned killer, got mad and cracked a guy over the head with a chair. Oh, yes, yes, I did read about it. The trial has been going on for a long time, hasn't it? His friends were trying to prove he was not mentally responsible. Wasn't that it? Yeah, that's the guy. They did their best to have him acquitted, but the court finally decided to have him sent over to Center City for six months' observation. Well, that's where we're taking him. And uh, he's the one who's hurt? Smashed his fingers in the car door trying to keep us from shutting it. He didn't want to come. <laughs> he sure was mad. He gets like that every once in a while, and then afterward he'll just be as quiet as a child. Hmm, is he in pain? He won't say, but he grunted all the way over here. I suppose we could have waited till we got to Center City, but it sort of, well, you know, got me. And his fingers look awful funny, Doc. You'd think a wrestler would be accustomed to a certain amount of pain. Oh, he's not complaining. Well, bring him in. Let's have a look at him. Okay. Oh, uh, you, uh, you remember this fellow's, uh, nuts, won't you? Is he violent? He can be. You know, sometimes he acts like a five-year-old. Just as gentle, like a dope almost. And then he's off again. He needs watching if you're going to work on him, Doc. No, oh, I guess with your help we can manage him. Uh, bring him in. In 1942, the producers began holding a contest in which listeners could send scripts to be eligible for large cash prizes. Weekly awards ranged from $150 to $500. The top prize script won its author two grand. In 1947, Newsweek reported that nearly 10,000 scripts were received. What did you have to do, Dr. Christian? Amputate. Oh. All three fingers. At the knuckles. Ooh. Well, there was no other way. The fingers were so badly mangled that if I'd waited, he might have lost his arm. Is he conscious yet? He will be soon. Miss Morrison and both guards are in there with him. He can't be moved until tomorrow. Oh, it'll be awful when he wakes up and finds out. Dr. Christian, was he terrible? The newspapers made him sound so, so ferocious. Do you think he really is a killer? I don't know, Judy. To me, he's a patient. Nothing more. He looked so big and helpless somehow. I'm going in now. Let me up! Let me up, I tell you! Let me up! Let me up! Uh, Bruiser, take it easy. Take it easy. You know what he's done. You know what that doctor did to my hand? He had to operate, Bruiser. Your hand was crushed. Crushed? What I care for was crushed. They're gone, I tell you. Gone. He cut off my fingers. My fighting fingers. Now, Bruiser. <laughs> I can't fight again. Never no more. I ain't got no fingers. No fingers. Do you hear? <laughs> there he is now. 
There he is, the doc, what done it? Let me at him! Just let me at him! Let me at him! Let me at him! Okay. Okay, there's two of you. You got me now. But you just wait. I'll come back here and cut that doctor's heart out if it's the last thing I ever do, see? They asked the audience to send in a story or a yes. script. Uh-huh. They said it was the only show on radio where the audience wrote the script. Yeah, they were lousy, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they were really very amateur. How much tampering did the writers do with the audience scripts? Huh? Quite a bit. Well, you mean been. the real writers on the show? Yeah. Yes, well, they had to fix them quite often mm-hmm. because they were really quite amateurish. But they had nice thoughts. They had nice plots. Mm-hmm. But they just needed fixing. The dialogue well, didn't work That's the well. essential ingredient that a writer has to look for anyway, isn't it? Good a good, good storyline. Yes. Something to work with, and then they can, they can pull it together. Mm-hmm. So the audience then did participate. Herschel would later found the Motion Picture Relief Fund and serve as president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts. The show never took a summer vacation. Dr. Christian ran over CBS until January 6, 1954. When Jean Herschel passed away from cancer in June of 1956, the Academy created the Jean Herschel Humanitarian Award. Criminally insane. Not to strike again. I wonder if he's forgiven you yet for operating on his hand. It's hard to know what ideas will persist in a disordered brain like his. Well, you go and get some sleep or yours will be disordered too. Close the door. Close both doors so you won't hear me typing. All right, but I depend on you. What's it like to have owned the studio that you worked in as a showgirl? Did you plan that? Can you imagine walking around RKO as a stock curl and saying, someday I'll own all this? (laughs) So ridiculous. And I get like that when they ask me. Then I cool it and I say, now really, could anyone really, at the beginning of their career, walk down and say, someday I'll own all this and think that it would be worthwhile? (laughs) And yet there was this drive to get back to New York and get into show business. I always wanted to get into show business. I never even got close to it. Not even close to it. I never appeared in anything except back in Jamestown. How do you explain that? Because that's that, that implies I didn't have that any, a lot I didn't of... know where to go to get in. I didn't have any connections. I didn't know anyone in show business. I didn't even know how to look it up in the paper, I guess. I don't know. Finally, I got so hungry, I, I decided to become a model so I could eat. And I became a good model. But models aren't supposed to eat. That's true. <laughs> But I was so thin and so tall, it didn't matter. I didn't eat too much. World is certain. I found out how to go to Needix and slip into a stool, grab the nickel tip and grab the half a donut someone left and put the nickel down again and say, may I have a cup of coffee? That and how to, uh, to confiscate leftover food when you were taken out to dinner at night. Lux presents Hollywood. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. Cecil B. DeMille. (laughs) Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. 
Every trade develops its own slang terms, along with its technical terms. By the spring of 1941, the Lux Radio Theater was one of the top shows on the air. With a rating of 23.4 and more than 16 million listeners, it was CBS's Monday Night Crown Jewel. Monday's second highest rated show had a rating of nearly 10 points less. Cecil B. DeMille was introduced at the beginning of every episode as producer, but the real man behind the program was the J. Walter Thompson Agency's Danny Danker. DeMille was actually a well-paid frontman. His duties were reading the scripted introductions to each act and the commercial-laden interviews with the stars at the end of each show. Vincent Price remembered starring on Lux. It was really extraordinary. Cecil B. DeMille was the host and uh, William Keeley and, and different people, you know, I mean, very distinguished directors. And the fact that it, all of the money went to the Actors Fund was very impressive. Besides, I suppose it had one of the biggest listening audiences of all time. And these dramas were rehearsed like plays. You know, you rehearsed a full week. I think they'll all agree on one point, though. Each show was a five-day commitment, beginning with a Thursday table read. Rehearsals were Friday, run-throughs with sound effects on Saturday, and Sunday had readings with sound and orchestra. The first dress rehearsal on Monday morning was recorded for the director's final critique. A last dress rehearsal was held with an audience at 4.30, and the broadcast aired live at 6 p.m. Pacific time. A candid camera story that she cannot ignore. The June 2nd, 1941 episode was called They Drive by Night. It starred George Raft with Lana Turner and Lucille Ball. Both ladies were making their first Lux appearance. Ball had been married six months earlier to Desi Arnaz. She'd soon become a CBS regular and a favorite of Chairman William Paley. Lucy was beautiful and she was lovable. She was a great entertainer and a great personality. She was simply in the class by herself. You said she was in a class by herself. Yeah, she was. U.S. Highway 99, a concrete ribbon of commerce winding its way over the hills from San Francisco to Los Angeles. In the dark hours of the morning, a steady stream of trucks roars along this road. Huge six-wheel monsters, their headlights burning into the blackness, their mighty tires pounding the concrete hour after hour, mile after mile. At intervals in the night, bright neon lights mark the resting places. Cafes for the weary drivers and service stations for the trucks. In one of these stations, a truck has just been tanked up. The driver stands quietly by, watching the attendant check the tires. Hey, Paul, what are you doing here? I got blisters waiting. I grabbed a hitch into Lansdale and promoted a second-hand wheel. Well, how'd you make out with Williams? I'm still waiting for the dough. What'll it be, mister? Coffee. Why do we stay in this racket, Joe? We'll never make enough out of it to buy ourselves decent coffins. Oh, stop grabbing. I got enough worries. Sweep that coffee down. We got to get rolling. Anything else? No, I don't want... Oh, hello. Hello. Anything else? Say, you're pretty. Yeah? How about a nice piece of pie? Oh, don't get me wrong, sister. All you make me think of is how much I'd like to be with my wife. Well, I never heard that one before. Yeah, my brother's married, but, but not me. I ain't even engaged. That ain't hard to understand. How's about that coffee? Coming up. Cute, huh? Come on, let's beat it. Hiya, Joe. Oh, hello, Dawson. Wish we had time to chew the fat with you, but we got a roll. We just had a little trouble. Yeah, Williams told me. Williams? Yeah, he, uh, he sent me up here to pick up your load. What? Why, that dirty muzzler. After carrying the load all this way, we won't get a dime out of it. What if we don't give it to you? Shut up, Paul. You're a nice guy, Dawson. 
Why do you pull stuff like this? It ain't my fault, Joe. I got a wife and a kid. I got to do what William says or don't get any hauls. Now, don't be sore at me, fellas. I'd like to bust that chisel in the nose. Button up, Paul. That don't get you nothing. Come on, our rig's about two miles down. Where do we go from there, Joe? I think maybe we better run back to Frisco. Yeah, I think maybe I'll slap Williams in the teeth. Wait a minute, Fabrizio. Wait a minute, nothing. You owe us 300 bucks, Chisel, and you're going to pay it now. But, Joe... And if you don't, I'll take it right out of your hide. All right, all right, now. Don't get hot. I'll pay you. Oh, that's better. But you fellas are going to regret this. Here's your money. And I don't mind telling you you've had your last load out of this office. Then in that case, we ain't got anything to lose, have we? Watch the birdie, Williams. Oh. Bad curve sitting up ahead. There'll be a layer of mud on it. Be careful. Oh, go to sleep, will you? I'm driving now. Oh, I was just reminding you. If we go over a cliff, wake me up. Hey, pour on the brakes. What's the matter? Somebody wants a lift. Listen, Joe, if we pick up everyone we see on the road, we won't get home until next week. Oh, it's a dame. Hurry up, sister. Why, it won't hurt us to give her a lift. So she bumps her head on the door and sues us. It's too bad one of them hotshot passenger cars can't find time to stop. Come on, sister. Oh, thanks. Gee, I was beginning to wonder if I'd ever get a ride. Well, you got one now, so relax. Hey, are you the dame who was slinging hash at Barney's? That's me. Well, what happened? I quit. Yeah? Why? I think Barney's taking wrestling lessons. I thought I ought to beat it before it gets to the half Nelson. I get it. How far are you going? How far are you going? L.A. Well, that's good enough for me. I'd just as soon be out of a job one place as another. Well, that's the way to feel. Well, what's your name? Cassie Hartley. Know anyone in L.A.? Nope. What are you going to do? Oh, find a room, look for work. Oh, jobs ain't growing on bushes anymore. How much money you got? Oh, enough to get by. When do we make L.A.? Early tomorrow morning. You been on the road long? Ten days. Ten days? Gee, I guess you got to have your brains knocked out to be a truck driver. Mm, you don't have to, but it helps. Hey, hey, what are you flashing your headlights for? Truck up ahead of us. That means we want to pass. If it's clear ahead, he'll wink his lights back. Well, I don't see him winking. Well, that's funny. It looks clear to me. Try him again, Paul. Yeah. Say... Ain't that Harry McNamara's rig? Yeah, looks well, I, like it. When I met him in Barney's, he was blurry-eyed. He's all over the road now. Look at him. Pull up alongside of him, Paul. That guy's asleep at the wheel. Well, blow your horn. Oh, not unless we have to. He might come to and take his rig right off the road. Watch out he don't dive into us, Paul. He's going off the road. Harry! Look out! Harry! Harry! <laughs> Pull up, Paul. They turned over! They turned over! Get the fire extinguisher quick! They're cooking in We could have cut him off. If I'd have been fast, it wouldn't have happened. Oh, now, take it easy, Paul. Take it easy. Why should I take it easy? That's where we're going to end up someday if we keep on. Well, I ain't keeping on. I don't have to kill myself. They got jobs in this country where a man don't have to die. I got a nice white bed, too. And I'm going to get in it before it's too late. Go on back to the truck, Paul. I'll take care of everything here. She must have been waiting up. Yeah. Hello, Paul. You're late, darling. I'm here anyway. That's something, ain't it? Paul, what's the matter? Hiya, Pearl. Oh, oh, hello, Joe. Come on, get out of there. I'll put on some coffee and... Oh, 
Well, Pearl, uh, this is Cassie Hartley. This is Pearl, my sister-in-law. Hello. Pleased to know you. Come on, Joe. It's cold out here. Oh, can't stop this trip, Pearl. I'll just about make the market now. Catch you on the way back. What's the matter with Paul? Oh, he's just a little nervous. He'll be okay after a night's sleep. Tell him I'll pick him up sometime tomorrow. I'll phone him when I'm leaving L.A. All right. Be careful. I can't figure you guys out. If you took care of your truck like you take care of yourselves, it'd fall apart in two weeks. Yeah? But we're tougher than any truck that ever came off an assembly line. Yeah, I'll bet your friend Harry thought the same thing. Forget about Harry, will you? He was probably so tired, he thought the whole thing was a dream. How much money you got? Come on, how much? A dollar and 12 cents. Hmm. That's what I thought. Not even enough to rent a room. Oh, I'll get along. How? A guy can walk around nights without a place to sleep, but a dame hasn't got a chance. Well, as soon as I dump this load, I'll get your room. Listen, you don't have to do that. I'm grateful just for the ride. You've been awful nice. Well, if I let you go, I keep worrying, wondering what happened to you. And I got enough worries the way it is. Well, I'd be pretty dumb if I didn't say yes. Where am I being dumb anyway? You can figure that out later. But I ain't used to taking new rumors at four in the morning. Well, it's never too late to start. Some of the best people check in at four in the morning. I wouldn't know about that. I never see any of them. Well, anyway, you got a bed for a week. Yeah, that'll give me enough time to find something to do. I'll pay you back. You know, I'm really worried about that. I got it all doped out how to go to the cops if you don't. So long, Red. Oh, wait. You, you've been swell to oh, me. Oh, cut it. Well, I guess it's all right if, if you want to kiss me goodbye. Sure, why not? Say. Goodbye. Don't fall asleep on the road. I won't, not after a pepper up like that. And don't practice that on anyone else. Save it for me. I will. But hurry back. You bet I will. What put her in class by herself? You her to do comedy better than any woman I've ever known. She's really amazing that way. And she's damn attractive. More attractive than most women by far. And bright, good company. I just thought she was a very special Get person. Get out of here. This space is only for Carlson's trucks. That's who I came to see, Carlson. And I'm parking here till I see him. Now listen, buddy. Get that broken down tub out of here or I'll park one on your chin. Oh, I ain't so sure of that. Well, maybe this will show you. Hey, hey, hey. Fabrini? Yeah. You remember Joe, don't you? Yeah, sure. Yeah, Joe shouldn't be fighting on the street like that. Boy, did he slap him that time. Smack him again, Joe. Shoot for his button. Come on. Come on. Ed, Ed, stop yelling out the huh? window. You're not a truck driver anymore. Oh, baby, can I help it if I get excited? When we got married, you promised to act like a gentleman. It's disgusting to see the head of a big company making more noise than any of his drivers. Ah, okay, okay. Hey, cut it out. Cut it out, John Do you hear me? Cut it out. Hey, Joe. Joe Fabrini. Yeah. Come on up here, champ, and see what you can do with a good man. Okay. <laughs> Is he coming up? <laughs> yeah. Great guy. Now, where were we, Marie? You were making out a check for me. Oh, yeah. Hey, what do you do with all the money, Marie? That's 200 this week. Would you like me to give you an itemized account, penny by penny? Oh, no, no, no. Wait a minute, baby. You, you use as much as you want. <laughs> it looked like a million. You got to spend a million, huh? What is it? Joe Fabrini to see you. Well, shoot him in. 
Hi, Ed. Come on in, Joe. <laughs> Who do you think you are, Jack Dempsey? <laughs> what was the beef down there? Nothing much. Some guy talked when he should have been listening. Oh, hello, Mrs. Carlson. Hello, Joe. Where you been hiding, Joe? Why don't you ever come up to see a guy? Oh, I've been pretty busy. Have a drink. Hey. Hey, the mice must have been in this bottle. <laughs> that was no mice. That was a rat. Huh? <laughs> Very funny, baby. Very funny. <laughs> she gets off good ones like that all the time, Joe. Come on, let's have one on the house, huh? Sorry, Ed. You know I never touch it. Well, okay. I'll have one for both of us, huh? Your liver must look like a bomb hit it. Well, I always say, live and let liver. You get it? <laughs> you think a fast one's like that after you've been married to a smart girl like Marie for seven years? If I thought I was responsible for anything like that, I'd hang myself. <laughs> you see what I mean, Joe? Right on the trigger every minute. <laughs> Sit down, Joe. I want to talk to you. Thanks. Joe, why don't you stop trying to beat the wildcat game and go to work for me, huh? You beat it, didn't you? Yeah, but I had an old uncle who was nice enough to kick off and leave me 20 grand. Look, Joe, I'm just getting in five new diesels. I'd like to have you and Paul on one of them. Thanks, Ed, but I still like to be my own boss. Buying my own products, I won't have to take anything from anyone. I think you should listen to Ed. He's talking sense for once. Oh, thanks, Mrs. Carlson. I probably sound like I don't appreciate Zorfa. I do. But I still want to try it my way. Just a few breaks, and maybe I'll be hiring Ed. Hmm? Oh, sure. And I'd haul for you, too. <laughs> Say, do you know where you can buy any loads? Oh, I ain't looked yet into it. I thought you might know. Well, sure. I know just the guy. And as long as I'm going to be working for you someday, I better start getting on the good side of you, huh, Joe? <laughs> yeah, and you'd better be nice to him, too, Marie. I'm always nice to your friends. Oh, yeah? <laughs> be back in a minute. Well... Well, what? Where were you last Thursday? On the road, I guess. You're lying. You were here in town. One of the boys saw you. So I was in town. I waited in front of that restaurant so long they thought I was a picket. Don't you ever keep a date. I didn't make a date. You did. I told you I wouldn't be there, and I'll tell you now. I'll never be there. Why? What's the matter with me? Nothing, except you got a husband, Mrs. Carlson, and he happens to be a friend of mine. Understand? Oh, now, Joe. Cut it out, Marie. Is there any harm in a kiss? Sometimes, yeah. Now lay off. You know, one of these days, Ed's going to catch you, and when he does, <laughs> he'll slap your ears off. <laughs> He'd never believe it. He could see it, and I could still convince him it wasn't so. A lot of dames think that, and they all end up behind the eight ball. You know, I wonder what I see in you. You're crude, you're uneducated, you never had a pair of pants with a crease in them. And yet, I can't get you off my mind, Joe. Well, you're not on my mind, so forget it. Hey, Aunt Joe, I wrote it down. The United Warehouse in Pomona asked for Oscar Drake. He's got a floor load of cut lemons he wants to get rid of. Well, that ain't bad. Uh, okay, Ed, I'm in business. You better beat it. He's in a hurry. Hey, wait a minute. You got any dough? Oh, enough for a load. Thanks, Ed. I, I won't forget this. Well, that's all right. Goodbye, Mrs. Carlson. Goodbye. It was nice to see you again, Joe. Keep your eye on that white line. You betcha. And I'll watch all the curves, too. So long, Joe. You know, if anyone can beat that wildcat racket, he can He's a great guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny how all the dames used to go for him. Hey, Marie. Hmm? I was talking about Joe. I said it's funny how all the dames used to go for him. Did they? I can't understand it. Tonight, we've asked Libby Collins, our Hollywood reporter, to give you a few flashes from the Hollywood fashion front. 
They've hit on me for a couple of things, but not not uh, about my comedy. Um, but like men, when when you're. Oh, you mean that kind of hitting yeah. on? <laughs> well, I've been married most of my life, and uh, that stopped a little of it, I'm sure. <laughs> I was married to Desi for 19 years. I've been married to Gary for 23 this last week. Oh, that's The best time is when you're working and you're happy, and we really had a ball. Lots of women admire the clothes the screen stars wear, and they take Hollywood's tip about even more important matters, too. Six months after this episode of Lux aired, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and Manila, bringing the U.S. into World War II. Well, that's only natural, Mr. Ruick, because women realize that Hollywood screen stars just have to have nice skin, and they know that if Lux toilet soap works for the stars... Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcasts from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. This day is the father of great anniversaries. Men and saints shall picnic together on 14 August down more years than you or I shall see. So say it tonight with saluting guns. Say it with roses. Say it with a hand clasp, a drink, a prayer. Say it any way you want, but say it. Say it! Columbia Broadcasting System presents 14 August, a message for the day of victory by Norman Corwin, spoken by Orson Welles. Congratulations for being alive and listening on this night. Millions didn't make it. They died before their time, and they are gone and gone. 
For the fascists got them. They are not here. But their acts are here. Dramatically, I don't think there's any medium better. First of all, it did what television doesn't do. It made people listen and pay attention because as we are talking, the great majority of our public may well be wandering about the room or up to something else. <laughs> but well, if it's on a, if radio, they couldn't follow it at all unless they were really following it. That's true, and the imagination really had to take over. That's why a lot of things on television they could never do as well. For example, I don't think on a television show they could do a horror or mystery type of thing no, as well. No, because your own imagination would do it. Because they can't create those special effects that's in the mind all the time when you hear it. When Japan surrendered after the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Norman Corwin was tabbed by CBS to produce a piece on the victory. Corwin cast Orson Welles in the role of Order. The next month, Welles began an ABC commentary series sponsored by Lear Radios. I don't know what this means, or even if it has meaning, but I can't resist mention of the fact that this much can be revealed concerning the appearance of tonight's atom bomb. It will be decorated with a photograph, a sizable likeness, of a young lady named Rita Hayward. Not long ago, I watched quite another sort of young lady paint her lips with something called, over the counter, the atom lipstick. The case of the cosmetic being fashioned according to the popular conceptions of the original war engine. I'm sure you won't need to be told that Miss Hayward is not one to use such a thing, or to hold it as anything less than a very hideous conceit. Her face is not on the atom bomb then by her own choosing, but by election of the flyers who will drop the bomb and who are clearly the business according to their taste. As regards selection, I find their taste beyond reproach, but the bomb dropping itself better be worthy of the accompanying photograph. Is this Faustus claimed of Helen of Troy the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless tower civilian. Well, I want a better toast, a better boast for Rebecca. I want my daughter to be able to tell her daughter that grandmother's picture was on the last atom bomb ever to explode. fall of 1945, Wells began work on The Stranger, a film noir about a war crimes investigator who tracks a high-ranking Nazi to a New England town. It co-starred Edward G. Robinson and Loretta Young. Long car trips and moves to quiet towns were becoming commonplace for Americans. In 1946, there were an estimated 9 million AM car radios in use, and baby boom families were moving to the suburbs in record numbers. The rectangular box remained the primary American gas station form. Most post-war box stations were made of concrete. To distinguish themselves, owners and companies retrofitted stations with contemporary design trends. After Frank Ulrich opened his station in Los Angeles, a number of other stations began to offer self-serve. They were primarily in California, 
the southwest, and the southeast, but the total number of these remained less than 3,000 until the early 1970s. Meanwhile, The Stranger was completed under budget, but within weeks, RKO backed out of a promised three-film deal. They felt the film wouldn't make any money. The Stranger cost just over $2 million to make. Fifteen months after its release, it had grossed more than three times that amount. It was the only film made by Wells to have been a bona fide box office success. In the spring of 1946, Wells was back in New York for a Broadway rendition of Around the World in 80 Days. It premiered on May 31st. The next Friday, June 7th, Wells debuted a new CBS series, The Mercury Summer Theater. On the summer solstice, the Mercury adapted Lucille Fletcher's The Hitchhiker. Good evening, this is Orson Wells, your producer of a special series of broadcasts presented by the makers of Pabst Blue Ribbon, the Mercury Summer Theater of the Air. Ladies and gentlemen, the element of suspense is so vital to our story tonight that our sponsors, the makers of Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer, are omitting their usual commercial message during the intermission between the acts so that our play will go uninterrupted from spooky start to spooky finish. Therefore, let's give Ken Roberts his 45-second opportunity right now to extol the merits of that blended, splendid... Uh, Ken? Of that blended, splendid Pabst Blue Ribbon. Those two words tell the whole flavor story. You see, every single drop of Pabst Blue Ribbon is the happy result of blending, the full flavor blending of never less than 33 fine brews. That's right. Never less than 33 fine brews blend their individual taste tones to give you that splendid flavor. Not too light, not too heavy, but fresh, clean, sparkling, with the real beer taste coming through just the way you like it. Friends, these days, when your dealer is occasionally unable to supply you with all the Pabst Blue Ribbon you'd like, please keep on asking. For every single bottle you do get will live up to the same high standards of quality and taste. Yes, every bottle will be, as always, blended, splendid, Pabst Blue Ribbon. And now, Mr. Wells. We of the Mercury reckon that a story doesn't have to appeal to the heart, it can also appeal to the spine. Sometimes you want your heart to be warm, sometimes you want your spine to tingle. Well, the tingling, it's to be hoped, will be quite audible as you listen tonight to a classic among radio thrillers. Its author is one of the most gifted of all the writers who've ever worked for this medium, Lucille Fletcher, who wrote the greatest single radio script ever written. Sorry, wrong number. The title of this, her terrifying little tale of Gru, for this evening, is another spine tingler by name, The Hitchhiker. I am in an auto camp on Route 66, just west of Gallup, New Mexico. If I tell it, Maybe it'll help me. It'll keep me from going crazy. But I must tell this quickly. I'm not crazy now. I feel perfectly well. Perfectly well. Except that I'm running a slight temperature. My name is Ronald Adams. I'm 36 years of age, unmarried, tall, dark, with a black mustache. I drive a 1940 Ford V8, license number 6V7989. 
I was born in Brooklyn. All this I know. I know that I'm at this moment perfectly sane. That it is not me who's gone mad. But something else. Something utterly beyond my control. But I must speak quickly. At any moment, the link with life may break. This may be the last thing I ever tell on Earth. The last night I ever see the stars. Six days ago, I left Brooklyn to drive to California. Goodbye, son. Good luck to you, my boy. Goodbye, mother. Here, give me a kiss, and then I'll go. I'll come out with you to the car. <laughs> oh, it's raining. Stay here at the door. Oh. Hey, what's this, tears? Oh, it's just the trip, Ronald. I wish you weren't driving. Oh, mother, there you go again. People do it every day. I know, but you'll be careful, won't you? Promise me you'll be extra careful. Don't fall asleep or drive fast. Or pick up any strangers now, on the road. Strangers? Don't you worry. There isn't anything going to happen. It's just eight days of perfectly simple driving on smooth, decent, civilized roads with a hot dog or a hamburger stand every ten miles. I was in excellent spirits. Drive ahead. Even the loneliness seemed like a lark. But I reckoned without him... Crossing Brooklyn Bridge that morning in the rain, I saw a man leaning against the cables. He seemed to be waiting for a lift. There were spots of fresh rain on his shoulders. He was carrying a cheap overnight bag in one hand. He was thin, nondescript, with a cap pulled down over his eyes. He stepped off the walk, and if I hadn't swerved, if I hadn't swerved, I'd have hit him. I almost did. Almost did hit him. Now, I would have forgotten him completely, except that just an hour later, while crossing the Pulaski Skyway over the Jersey Flats, I saw him again. At least he looked like the same person. He was standing now with one thumb, pointing west. I couldn't figure out how he'd got there, but I thought maybe one of those fast trucks had picked him up, beat me to the Skyway, and let him off. I didn't stop for him. Then, late that night, I saw him again. It was on the new Pennsylvania turnpike between Harrisburg and Pittsburgh. It's 265 miles long with a very high speed limit. I was just slowing down for one of the tunnels when I saw him standing under an arc light by the side of the road. I could see him quite distinctly. The bag, the cap, even the spots of fresh rain battered over his shoulders. He hailed me this time. I stepped on the gas like a shot. That's lonely country through the Alleghenies, and I had no intention of stopping. Besides, the coincidences, or whatever it was, gave me the willies. I stopped at the next gas station. Yes, sir. Fill her up, will you? Check your oil? No, thanks. Nice night, ain't it? Yes. Yeah, it it uh, hasn't been raining here lately, has it? Not a drop of rain all week. Oh, no? I, I suppose that hasn't done your business any harm. Well, people drive through here all kinds of weather. Mostly business, though. Ain't many pleasure cars out in the turnpike this season of the year. I guess not. What about hitchhikers? 
<laughs> Hitchhikers here. Why, what's the matter? Don't you ever see any? A guy be a fool who's turned out to hitchhike on this road. Look at it. Then you never see anybody? Nope. Maybe they get a lift before the turnpike starts. I mean, you know, just before the toll house. But then it's a mighty long ride. Most cars wouldn't pick up a guy for that long a ride. This is pretty lonesome country here, mountains and woods. Yeah. Hey, you ain't seen nobody like that, have you? Oh, no, no, it's, it's just a <laughs> technical question. Oh, I see. Well, uh, that'll be $1.49 with the tax. <laughs> thing gradually passed from my mind as coincidence. I had a good night's sleep in Pittsburgh. I didn't think about the man all next day until just outside of Zanesville, Ohio. I saw him again. It was a bright, sunshiny afternoon. The peaceful Ohio fields, brown with the autumn stubble, lay dreaming in the golden light. I was driving slowly, drinking it in, when the road suddenly ended in a detour. In front of the barrier, he was standing. Let me explain about his appearance before I go on. I repeat, there was nothing sinister about him. He was as drab as a mud fence. Nor was his attitude menacing. He merely stood there, waiting, almost drooping a little the cheap overnight bag in his hand. He looked... He looked as though he'd been waiting there for hours. And he hailed me. He started to walk forward. Hello! Hello! I'd stopped the car, of course, for the detour. For a few minutes, I couldn't seem to find the new road. I realized he must be thinking that I'd stopped for him. Hello! No, oh, I'm... Not just now, I, I'm sorry. Going to California? No, no, not today. The other way, I'm, I'm going to New York. Sorry. Sorry! After I got the car back onto the road again, I felt like a fool. Yet the thought of picking him up, of having him sit beside me was somehow unbearable. Yet at the same time, I felt more than ever unspeakably alone. Hour after hour went by. The fields, the towns ticked off one by one. The lights changed. I knew now that I was going to see him again. And though I dreaded the sight, I, I caught myself searching the side of the road waiting for him to appear. Yep. What is it? What you want? You sell sandwiches and pop here, don't you? Yep, we do. In the daytime. But it close up for the night. I know, but I, I was wondering if, if you could possibly may have a cup of coffee. Black coffee. Not at this time of night, mister. My wife's a cooking cheese in bed. Well, now, uh, l listen, ju just a minute ago, there was a man standing here, right, right beside here, and he was a suspicious-looking man. Henry? Who is it, Henry? It's nobody, Mother. She's a fan of things. She wants a cup of coffee. Now, Go back into bed. I, I don't mean to disturb you, but you see, 
I was driving along when I just happened to look, and there he was. What was he doing? Nothing. You've been hitting the bottle. That's, that's what's the matter with you. You got nothing better than do than wake decent folk out of their hard-earned sleep. Now get going. Go on. But he, he, he looked as though he was going to rob you. I ain't got nothing in this stand to lose. On your way before I call out chair folks. got into the car again and drove on slowly. I was beginning to hate the car. If I could have found a place to stop to rest a little, but... I was in the Ozark Mountains of Missouri now. Few resort places there were closed. I had seen him at that roadside stand. I knew I'd see him again. Maybe at the next turn of the road. I knew that... When I saw him next, I'd run him down. But I didn't see him again until late the next afternoon. I'd stopped the car at a sleepy little junction just across the border into Oklahoma. Let a train pass by when he appeared across the tracks. He was leaning against a telephone pole. It was a perfectly airless, dry day. The red clay of Oklahoma was baking under the southwestern sun. Yet there were spots of fresh rain on his shoulders. I couldn't stand that. Without thinking blindly, I started the car across the tracks. He didn't even look up at me. He was staring at the ground. I stepped on the gas hard, veering the wheel sharply toward him. I could hear the train in the distance now, but I didn't care. Then, something went wrong with the car. It, it stalled right on the tracks. The train was coming closer. I could hear its bell. Her cry, its whistle crying. Still, he stood there. Now I knew that he was beckoning. Beckoning me to my death. in that time. The starter had worked at last. I managed to back up, but after the train had passed, he was gone. I was all alone in the hot, dry afternoon. Wells remained in New York for the rest of the summer. Around the World in 80 Days closed on August 3rd. The Mercury Summer Theater went off the air on September 13th. And the final commentary aired on October 6th, 1946 on ABC. It was the last time Orson Welles produced his own U.S. radio series. For more information on this portion of his career, tune into Breaking Walls, episode 104.
network shows had to be lined by were. law. The only transcribed shows were syndicated shows and local ones. NBC Blue had become an independent network with its $9 million sale to Ed Noble on October 12, 1943. Rebranded the American Broadcasting Company in 1945, the nation's number three network made headlines in 1946 when they brought in Bing Crosby. In 1945, Crosby decided he wanted to pre-record his Kraft Music Hall program on NBC. While Mutual had no restrictions on transcribed programs, CBS and NBC forbid them for network shows. Crosby was adamant. He walked out on his contract. A captain in the signal corps had come back from Germany. He'd spent some time over there after the war, a year or two. And he brought back, I don't know whether he brought a prototype of a tape machine or whether he just brought back the knowledge of how to put one together. But anyhow, he built one and showed it to us, and it was practical, and it seemed to me we could get the same result as a live show, taping in front of an audience and still have an opportunity to edit or delete or interpolate anything that we uh, wanted to do after the show was finished, although lots of times there was no necessity to uh, touch the show at all. And again, you could tape it any day you wanted. You could tape it two or three days in a row if you wanted. If it appeared that you were going to want three or four weeks off for a trip. It seemed to me an ideal thing, but the networks didn't want it, didn't like it. They felt it would break up the networks or something, and the trade papers uh, opposed it, the taping. Uh, I think I finally uh, got a little petulant about it, I, or adamant. I said, well, it's going to be that way, or, uh, or get a new boy or something. After almost a year of litigation, he was given his release. ABC jumped in and put together a transcribed musical show with a weekly budget of $35,000. Crosby was paid $8,000 per week. Philco Radios would sponsor. Bing's composer John Scott Trotter remembered that time. NBC and CBS were uh, adamant that they were not going to, and they should have been, because the advent of tape was the beginning of the end of the network as it was. The transcribed Philco Radio Time premiered on October 16, 1946. Bob Hope was Crosby's special guest. When the blue of the night meets the gold of the day Someone waits for me. This is Ken Carpenter welcoming you to the world premiere of Philco Radio Time, produced and transcribed in Hollywood with John Scott Trotter, his orchestra and chorus, the charioteers, Lena Romai, Skitch Henderson, and starring Bing Crosby. <laughs> well, Bing, here we are in a brand new program with Philco. What kind of a show are we going to have? Well, I figure on something effervescent, charming, gay, carefree, bright, sparkling, scintillating, ebullient. Uh, no dull spots, huh? Well, there may be a lull tonight. Bob Hope's coming over a little later, and this is a little late for him this time of the evening. But before Trowel Nose gets here, let's have some music, huh? 
24 million tuned in, making it the week's fourth most listened to show. Although the ratings would fall and then rise back up into the mid-teens, the radio's Crosby touted on air sold out nationally after each show. Philco Radio Time was entrenched, and prime time network transcription was here to stay. I think the format of the Philco show was a good deal like the craft show, but I don't think we used as many legitimate artists as we did on the craft show, as many uh, people from the opera or from the concert field. ABC Brass began piloting new shows with the intent on competing with the two larger networks. On November 3rd, 1946, from New York, they debuted The Clock. The following April 6th, they broadcast The Man with the Strange Trunk. Sunrise and sunset. Promise and fulfillment, birth and death. The whole drama of life is written in the sands of time. We present a new series of radio programs, The Clock. defines the word tourist as one who makes a tour, a traveler, someone who goes from place to place learning new ways of life and seeing new things. To many of us, the word has a romantic quality, and we envy the lucky globetrotter, just as Liz and Henry Briggs envy the travelers who pass the little tourist house and gas station they own just off the big state highway on the rim of Death Valley. It's the location, Henry. Now, why should people stop overnight at a place like this? They're on their way to Hollywood, maybe, or New York. They don't have time. I know, Liz. I know. You told me before. But you seem to forget that a man behind the wheel has got to get some rest. Not here, though. Not in this forsaken spot. And I don't blame them. Mm. I bet it must be nice to travel. Europe, Africa, India. Can you imagine seeing the Taj Mahal in the moonlight? What have we got for supper? <laughs> supper. That's all you ever think about. Your stomach. Aren't you even interested in anything else? Right now? No. Someone's pulling up outside. I like the pumps. Station's closed. You're not stopping in front of the pumps, Henry. You stop by the door. Say, maybe want to spend the night. Look at that car, Henry. Isn't it handsome? Hmm. You sure must be going places. Look at the size of that trunk he's got strapped to the back. We'd better go out and see what he wants. All right. Evening. Evening. I saw your sign. I was... Wondering if you had any room. Oh, we've got plenty of rooms. Three dollars a night, single. Uh, six with meals. Oh, that sounds fine. Well, I'll park the car. <laughs> oh, it's it's all right where it is. My luggage is in the back. Well, how about that trunk? Uh, you want to leave it there, I guess, if you're only staying for the night. Oh, I may stay longer, so I'll take it upstairs with me. My name's Hewlett. Jason Hewlett. And mine's Briggs. And this here's the message. How do you do? Well, glad to know you. That's quite a trunk you've got there, Mr. Hewlett. I never saw so many labels. Goodness, look at this, Henry. Paris, London, Cairo, Compton. Hey, stay away from that, please. 
What? I... I don't like anyone going near my things. I was just looking at the labels, Mr. Hewlett. Oh, I'm... I'm sorry. I, that was rude of me. Uh, yeah, yes, that trunk has been around quite a bit. It's had its share of experience. <laughs> it looks kind of heavy, mister. I'd better help you unstrap and carry it upstairs. Uh, you'll... You'll be very careful. Why, sure. All right, we'll carry it up together. Oh, first, here's three days' rent in advance. Huh? I'll want a quiet room on the top floor, if possible. And I want all my meals served there. Well, that's uh, that's kind of irregular. I'll pay you extra for it. Is it okay with you, Liz? Oh, sure. It'll be a pleasure to put ourselves out a little for a traveling man like Mr. Hewlett. And he might even tell us all about the places he's been to and the things he's seen and done if he gets a little time. <laughs> you never can tell, Mrs. Briggs. I might. Oh, what a load that trunk was. Must have bricks inside. <laughs> Gold bricks, maybe, the way he kept telling me to be careful. Did he like his room, Henry? No, sure, he's not hard to please. He'd have plenty of money, too, the way he handed out. Did you ask him about his business? What he does? Now, listen, Liz, that's his business, not ours. You got a bad habit of being too curious. Man's got a right to some privacy. Oh, my goodness, it can't do any harm to ask him what kind of work he does. Mm. Maybe he's a government agent or something. All those labels on his luggage. Your trouble, you go to too many of those spy pictures, government agent. <laughs> my guess is this guy's a salesman. He's got that trunk full of samples. Yeah, here he comes. Now, don't ask him any questions. Hello. Oh, hello, Mr. Hewlett. Would you mind having dinner downstairs with us just for tonight? It's all prepared, and if I take the time to bring it up, it might get cold. Well, well, all right. Just for tonight. I'll sit down, make yourself comfortable. I'll have the soup out in a jiffy. <laughs> it's, uh, it's nice to have you with us, Mr. Hewlett. Oh, thanks. Uh, how far is the nearest town? Oh, about 11 miles east. Uh, Death Valley's west. 11 miles, eh? Is it a large town? Large enough. This goes in every Monday to do her shopping for the week. Town's called Warren City. I I thought I might do a little business there. Oh, what kind of business? Liz, be careful uh, of that suit. It's a nice place you have here. Oh, it could be nicer. I've been wanting to do some redecorating, but Henry says it's too expensive. <laughs> I like the place the way it is. Henry's not a man for novelties. I remember how I had to beg him to buy a radio years oh, ago. Yeah. He said it was only a newfangled toy that wouldn't last. You, uh, you own a radio? Oh, yeah, good one, too. We usually listen to news about this time. Uh, say, Liz, will you turn it on? I, I wish you wouldn't turn it on right now. No? I, I, I have a slight headache. It's too much driving. The radio wouldn't help it any. Hmm. All right, Mr. Hewlett. You're the guest, and pass salt, Liz. Rolls, Mr. Hewlett. Oh, thanks. Nice and fresh, too. There's a truck that delivers them every morning, along with the papers. The, the newspapers? Mm-hmm. Warren City Gazette. Pass about the list. You're rather secluded out here, I imagine. It must get lonesome. Oh, I don't know. Oh, it does, Henry, and you know it. Our nearest neighbor's a mile away, Mr. Hewlett, and there's never much excitement. In 1947... ABC would land three shows in the top 50. 
that number would jump to six in 1948, and nine in 1949. But by 1949, television was becoming a key network factor. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? What gazpacho is supposed to be served cold? Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. If you were going to work on dragnets, you had to play in the same key as Jack. <laughs> you had to hit the same pace. Yeah. Because if you started to act... You'd sound like an absolute fool with yeah. the pace that, that Jack was keeping. It's a terribly believable performance. So you really sound like the guy, you know, working behind the counter in a yeah. clothing well, store. And, uh, you know. It was the theory of letting the words carry the emotion rather than having to dramatize it. Uh, unless you really flipped your lid and went off the deep end. Was it something. a big adjustment? I mean, when you first worked Dragnet, did they sit you down and say, Okay, Vic, now you're not going to do the old shticks. we got a different style on this show? Or how did they approach Somehow, it? Somehow, those of us who worked it fairly regularly kind of caught on in mm -hmm. a hurry. Ladies and gentlemen, by transcription, we take you now behind the scenes of a police headquarters in a great American city, where under the cold, glaring lights will pass before us the innocent, the vagrant, the thief, the murderer. This is the lineup. Just take any one of the seats. You know, right, right here is fine. Hi, Ben. Oh, hello, Coin. How many you got? Six. All of the robberies? Yeah. I don't think we'll get much, though. I'm pretty sure the boys we want don't have a package. May I have your attention, please? You people hey, out I, there uh, on the other side of the wire in the someday. audience room. Oh, okay, May I have sure. Your I'll see you in the office later, huh? Right. Thank you. My name is Greb, Sergeant Matt Greb. I'll explain the lineup to you. Each of the suspects you will see will be numbered. I'll call off a number, their name, and charge. If you have any questions or identifications, please remember the number assigned to the prisoner as I call his name. At the end of each line, when I ask for questions or identifications, call out the number. If you're sure or not too sure of the suspect, have him held. 
The officers who took your name will assist you. They're seated among you. Please be prompt with your questions or identifications. When the prisoners leave here, they are sent to the bathroom and dressed back into their jail clothes. It makes it quite difficult to bring them back after they leave here. The questions I ask these suspects are merely to get a natural tone of voice. So do not pay too much attention to their answers as they often lie. Bring on the line. All right, keep it moving right over to the end of the stage. Right over here, boy. That's right. Okay, now face front, hands to your side. Come on, you. Come on. Give him a little room up there. Now, look, boys, this is a big room. You'll have to speak up so everybody can hear you. A lot of people out there, and they all want to hear what you got to say, so keep your voice up. Okay, number one, Joel Webster, robbery. Where do you live, Joel? 717 and a half west of 108. Is that a hotel, a house, or what? Hotel. Has it got a name? Yeah. Ashton Arms. Who were you arrested with? Nobody. I was arrested alone. I wasn't with nobody. Any weapons? No. Didn't you have a knife? Yeah, but I wouldn't call it a weapon. Well, what would you call it? A knife. Just a knife. How big a knife was it? Oh, about this big, like this, when it's open. About eight inches? When it's open. It was open when you were picked up, wasn't it? Yeah, it got open. Okay, number two. Leonard Palms, robbery. All right, Leonard. Don't look at me, look out at the people. Can't see him. What? Nothing. All right. Where do you live, Leonard? Just got to town. Okay, where have you been staying? In your tank. I just got to town two days ago. Been here maybe an hour. I pull a job. I get picked up. I've been here for two days. That's where I've been staying. Where are you from? California, San Bernardino. You mean San Bernardino? Yes, yeah, San Bernardino. Were you arrested with anybody? Yeah, I was arrested with another guy, George Lumpkin. Right here, number seven. We're buddies. How long have you known him? Kids together. Lived in Bernardino. San Bernardino over on D Street, right behind where I used to live. Known him uh, 20 years, huh, George? Yeah, about 20. Any weapons? No, we never pulled nothing like this before. We got rolled on a train. Oh, you came in by train? Yeah, boxcar, rods. In the boxcar, a couple of guys piled on and rolled us. We needed dough, so we grabbed a purse, but we never done nothing like that before. Huh, George? See? Okay. Number three, Carl Young, robbery. Now, how about it? Any of these men? Where do you live, Carl? 889 South 4. Now, have him talk up, Matt, please. Right. You'll, uh... He'll have to be louder, Carl. 889 South Fuller. I live there. You always wear glasses? Yeah, I don't have to all the time, but I do. Take them off. Keep facing the front. What you got to say, say it to the people out there, not to me. Yes, sir. You working, Carl? No, sir. Not in six or seven months. What do you do when you work? Gardener. Sometimes anything. Odd jobs and things. Any weapons? Yes, sir. A gun. What kind of a gun? 32, Smith & Wesson. Blue steel, nickel plate or what? Nickel-plated. I had it for about 10 years. You own a car? No. Were you arrested with anyone? No. Where are you from, Carl? From here. I've been here all my life. I was brung up on the south side. I wish I wasn't from here. Now, how about it? Recognize any of these men? All right, number four. James Newton, robbery. Where do you live, James? 309 Greenlawn. Now, remember what I said about talking up? 309 Greenlawn. That's better. Where's that, James? South side, over near Garvey Hill. 
Who were you arrested with? Three fellas. They're in the other room. Guessing the next line. Who are they? A fella named Bleeker. Another guy named... Uh... Thanks to the success of NBC's Dragnet, CBS was looking to replicate its model. Broadway's My Beat proved a poetic departure, but failed to attract national sponsorship. In the summer of 1950, Columbia launched the lineup. Like Broadway's My Beat, it was initially directed by Elliot Lewis and written by Morton Fine and David Freakin. It starred Bill Johnstone and Wally Mayer, and featured Hollywood radio regulars, like the Just Heard Vic Perrin, Jack Moyles, Peggy Weber, Herb Butterfield, Sam Edwards, and Virginia Gregg. By the winter of 1951, Blake Edwards came in to write scripts. Edwards would later direct Operation Petticoat, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and the Pink Panther series. But in 1951, he was one of Hollywood Radio's insiders. On Thursday, February 1st at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, the lineup broadcast the supermarket murders. It's about a group of thugs holding up groceries and gas stations. Hi, Ben. Oh, you look a little tired. Yeah, a little. No identifications? Uh-uh. I didn't think they would. These boys don't have records. Well, they're sure going to have. Uh, eight robberies in a month. Yeah, we got good descriptions. Yeah, they follow a pretty uniform M.O. Gas stations, all-night markets. Yeah. The best we can do is stake out every all-night market and try watching as many gas stations as possible. Uh, that's a big order. It sure is. Uh, you're with me tonight. Okay. We've got the west side market over on Fountain. You better go over and check out at Thompson just in case we're lucky. Lucky. You're getting tired of sitting here. 88. What are you going to do tomorrow? Uh, I got to go qualify if I want to keep my rating. Well, you rate expert, don't you? Yeah. Eight bucks a month. Well, it's my day off, too. I think I'll go along. I'll pick you up. Okay. About 10? I'm picking Quine up, too. Yeah, he's a good shot. Darn good. I got to get up there. My last qualification was in February. February? Yeah. Boy, what did you start yawning for? <laughs> you know, I hate guys who pick on all night spots to stick up. We've already been here four hours. Well, one thing these guys aren't consistent about is the time they pick. Liable to be anywhere from 11 o'clock to 6 in the morning. Oh, swell. Huh? Uh, my watch is fast. Yeah, uh, here's something. All units in area Q, a 211, code 4, at the Wheeler Market, 608 South Chestnut. All units in area Q. Well, this is what we've been looking for. Our boys have started using their guns.
Uh, okay, take it away. Yeah, that's Asher. Uh, Quine's inside talking to the manager. Okay. All right. All right, let us through, please. Let us get by, please. Come on, come on. Who'd they haul off in the ambulance? Manager's son. Oh. Hello, Ben. All right, what happened? Uh, this is Mr. Bishop. He runs the store. This is Lieutenant Guthrie and Sergeant Greb, Mr. Bishop. I've got to get down to the hospital. That yeah, was his son in the ambulance. Yeah, Asher told me. Please, I should be with Jack. It was the four men we want, all right. They came in, held up the cash register, girl. Oh, is that her? Yeah, the one crying. They asked for the money, and Mr. Bishop's son went for a gun under the counter. He wanted to protect the store. He wasn't afraid of them. Please, I've got to get down and see how he is. Asher. Yeah, Ben. See that Mr. Bishop gets down to the hospital. Get him there fast. Sure. Thank you. The car's out this way. Get a statement when he feels like it. Yeah, okay. Now let's go talk to the girl. Oh, okay. The name's Wilson. Jean Wilson. Engaged to the son. Yes, sir. Miss Wilson? Yes. This is Lieutenant Guthrie. He'd like to talk to you. All right. Uh, Miss Wilson, uh, did you get a good look at the hold-up men? Yes. Oh, it's just terrible. I've never been in a hold-up or anything. It was, it was just awful. When that one man shot, shot Jack, it was just terrible. You could identify never... the man who shot Jack, though, huh? Yes, I, I could identify him. I think I could identify all of them. All but the one who stood by the door. There were four of them? Four, yes. I, I got a good look at three of them. Two of them came right up to the cash register. The one stood right over there by the vegetable section, but... I'd recognize him. Uh, and the uh, the fourth, he stood by the door? Yes, right over there on, on the right side. I, I didn't see him until the two men who walked up to me took out guns and told me to give them all the money in the cash drawer. And then I noticed the one standing by the door, just sort of out of the corner of my eye. He had a gun, too. I was scared to death, and, and Jack, well, he was standing in... Jack was standing right behind her. When the holdup boys showed their guns, Jack reached for a gun his father kept under the counter. Still there. He never made it. On most of those shows, I doubled other mm -hmm. parts. Too. Maybe if an old charwoman came in or something, I'd do those. Did you often uh, use an alternate voice then on these mm -hmm. shows? Uh huh. Mm -hmm. And give us a charwoman's voice? Now? Sure. Oh, well, you'd have to hand me a script and say, here, do her. Take this bucket. Yeah. And what do you want her in? Japanese, Swedish? Oh, you do German, the dialects, Jewish. Uh, dialects and, uh, and everything. Oh, yeah. Boy, I'm really tired. Yeah, me too. Been a long night. 4.30. I wonder how Mr. Bishop's boy's doing. We ought to hear soon. Hey, wait a minute. I got to wash up. Yeah, me too. <coughs> oh. Matt? Huh? Want to lift home? Yeah, yeah, please. Hmm. Are you still going out to the range at 10? Yeah, I got to. I have to qualify tomorrow, or I don't qualify at all. Yeah. I sure wish we'd get these guys. Oh, we will. Might take a while, but we will. 
Sooner or later, they'll make a mistake. We'll get spotted and we'll get them. Yeah. Well, the descriptions we've got from all the witnesses, somebody's got to spot them. Hi. Hi. Oh, hello, Asher. How's the bishop, Ken? He's dead. Huh? Died ten minutes ago. I took Mr. Bishop home. He didn't feel much like making a statement. In the lineup, there were a few heroics. Said Newsweek, everything they do is just a job. Blake Edwards cruised with police and watched their methods. He read a dozen newspapers each day and freely adapted truth to fiction. End of time fire. Well, let's take a look. Yeah, I felt like I was waving at a bus. You got a 98, Ben. Waving at a bus. That's what I felt like. <laughs> I wish I could wave like that. 97, Matt. Hey, how about Quine? We got a bet. I'm counting it up. You might as well pay up now, boy. I feel it today. <laughs> <laughs> the Annie Oakley of the 16th Precinct. <laughs> 99, Quine. What? You see? Come on, come on. Pay up. Uh, you probably made a deal with the range master. Come on. I hate Welshers. Let's have it. Okay, okay. Here's your dime. Wait a minute. You want to double it on the time fire? 20 cents? 20 cents. How are you going to eat next week? 20 cents. You want it or not? <laughs> you want in on this one, Ben? Sure. I'll get in on it. <laughs> okay. First half of rapid fire. Load and lock. Fire on third bell. Asher. Hello, Asher. Hi. Hey, boys all look pretty mean. Second half of rapid fire, load and lock. Fire on third bell. Hey, you look pretty good, Ben. Uh, he waves, and every time he does, he shoots a 98. <laughs> they got two of the hold-up men. Oh, they did? Come on, Matt. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. You say they got the hold-up men? Yeah, two of them. Phillips had a rookie out in the car, spotted two guys in a parking lot, stealing some stuff out of the back of a car. A couple of young guys. Phillips and this rookie named uh, Crockett picked them up. That's wrong. They got two of the hold-up men. Phillips and a rookie picked them up. They didn't even figure that they might have been part of the hold-up gang. Caught them stealing something out of the car, huh? What? Well, they took them in, shook them down, but not very well. They were bringing them up the back way when one of them pulled a hideout gun. There was a fight on the steps. Rookie got both of them. One dead and the other's dying. I uh, just left Phillips' family. Well, what happened to Phillips? The one with the hideout gun killed him. Each of us hopes the current war will not spread and the world peace will yet be achieved. Unlike Broadway's My Beat, the lineup briefly found sponsorship in 1952 for Wrigley's Gum in Plymouth. This episode's announcer was Dan Coverley. Air Force and Coast Guard. Volunteers mean high morale and efficiency for our armed forces. Go to your nearest recruiting office to see if you are eligible to volunteer. 
Volunteer today and be the leader of tomorrow. Second floor, please. Yes, sir. Hello, Guthrie. How are you, Doc? Uh, Sergeant Graham. Yeah, I, I know the doc. Yeah, how are you, Sergeant? <sighs> okay. Your man's in here. Bullet severed the cervical spine. He's in bad shape. His partner's in the morgue. Jacobs? <laughs> Jacobs. He was talking ten minutes ago. Jacobs. This is Lieutenant Guthrie Jacobs. He wants to talk to you. Jacobs, we want to know where we can find your other two partners. Where's Eddie? He's dead. You killed a policeman, Jacobs. I don't know nothing. You killed a policeman, and we know you're one of four men who've been pulling off those robberies. We got Eddie, and we got you. We want to know who the other two men are. Told Eddie we should have left those cars in order. Small time. The other two men, Jacobs. <laughs> no good, Eddie. Let's get out of here. One of you killed that boy in the grocery store. Now tell us who the other two men are. He doesn't know what he's saying. You won't get anything out of him now. We gotta find those other two. <laughs> Sorry, Sergeant. He's in a coma. Okay. I'll put a man on him in case he comes to and wants to talk. He'll need an oxygen tent if he's going to pull through. Well, you think he'll make it? I doubt it. That slug went in crazy. Right in his hand, up his arm, and through his body. Must have hit his arm out straight. That's right. Pointing a gun. I'm going to see about the tent. Hello. Robbery, please. I, uh... I talked with Crockett, the rookie. He's just sick about it. Hello, Quinn. Guthrie, I want a man up here to stay with Jacobs. No, no, he's he's in a coma, but he may come around. I want a man here. Yeah. Yeah? Well, what's the address? Uh, just a minute, wait. Uh, give me that pencil, Matt, and that pen. Here. All right. All right, go ahead. 445 North Elm. Okay. His uncle, huh? Ketchell? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, Matt and I'll take it. Yeah, bye. What's up? They got an address on Jacobs, 445 North Elm. Lives with his uncle, Mr. Ketchell. Well, things are getting hotter. Which way, Lieutenant? Down. Yes, sir. Mr. Ketchell? Yeah. Police. What do you want? We'd like to talk to you. Okay, come on in. Place is a mess. Excuse it. <coughs> hey, we can sit in here. It ain't so dirty in here. <coughs> How about a drink? No, thanks. You don't mind? I'm going to have one. Just grab a chair. We want to talk to you about your nephew. Yeah, I figured. Sure you won't have a short one? No, thanks. <coughs> Lousy cough. Had it for a month. No. More than a month. Had the lousy thing since December. Cheers. Your nephew's in the hospital. 
He is. He was shot. He killed a policeman. <coughs> killed a cop, huh? How do you like that? Well, he ain't no nephew of mine. I'm not really his uncle. My wife's nephew. She's dead. I brought him up. He was with a friend, Eddie Klein. Yeah, just like Jake. No good. Knew Jake would get thrown into jail sooner or later. Never thought he'd kill a cop. We're looking for two more of his friends. Two more? Your nephew? He ain't no nephew. Jacobson Klein, along with two other men, started holding up stores and gas stations a week ago. Holding up stores and gas stations? Yeah. And we want to know where we can find the other two men. And sticking up places. Kills a cop. And a young boy who worked in one of the stores. <coughs> You've got to get me another drink. You sure? Uh, no, thank you. He never was any good. I, I brung him up. His family died when he was three, I think. Wife's sister. Come to live with us. Wife died ten years ago. Never could do anything with him. Yeah, he's been getting in trouble. Oh, those kids making all kinds of rackets. I told them. Hey, cut that out. Cut it out. Little brats. Yeah, they beat that dishpan all day. Look, Mr. Ketchum, can you help us on the other two men? Well, one of them would probably be Willie Harris. They run around together. Where does Willie Harris live? A rooming house over on Maple, next block. Don't know the address, but it's in the middle of the block. All right, thanks, Mr. Ketchum. Sure. Kills a cop, sticks up stores. They get much money out of these stores? Going to bed. <laughs> Never showed none of it around here. <coughs> so long. By early 1951, television's audience poll had extracted a significant portion of radio listeners. In February 1948, the Lux Radio Theater was the highest rated show on the air with a rating of 38.5. In February of 1951, Lux was still radio's highest rated show, but down to 21.3. TV's highest rated show was Milton Berle's Texaco Star Theater with a rating of 61.6. Truth or Consequences was seen opposite this episode of the lineup on CBS TV. Yeah, usually. How soon in advance would you get a script for you a You never got a script in advance. Didn't get one. Uh -uh. When they rehearsed it. In the early one. days, you went in and you had a conference, a story conference, and a, a read-through, mm -hmm. and you'd say, well, I don't think she would say this, or wouldn't it be better if... And you could talk a show over and have a first read-through. Mm -hmm. When radio kind of faded out toward the end there, mm -hmm. particularly with Jack. Now, Jack Webb really did have a stock company. He used the same people, and so did Jack Johnstone, pretty much. Mm -hmm. They would say such things as, now, next week you're doing an Irish, and I'd say, I don't do Irish, and they'd say, sure you do. <laughs> and I would get it, and you do Irish. Yeah, this looks like the place. Rooms. 88, yeah. code 6. Now that's us. 88, code 6. 88, Roger. Let's go, Matt. I'll use the phone in the rooming house. Huh? Oh, what's up? 
Uh, Willie Harris lives here. I'll want to call in anyway. And if he's one of the boys that... Yes? The police. Oh, is something wrong? Does Willie Harris live here? Well, yes. Has he done something? Is he in? No, hasn't been in since yesterday. Mm, I'd like to use your phone. Well, all right. Has Willie done something? You're going to arrest him? No, we're not sure. We want to talk with him. Where'd you say that phone was? Oh, right in there on the stand. Oh, thanks. Wouldn't be a bit surprised if Willie's done whatever you think he's done. I've never liked him. Has, uh... Has he had any money in the last two weeks? Yes, he's paid some of his back rent. I don't know where he got it. He isn't working. Hello, this is Guthrie. No, thanks. It's Quine, Matt. Willie Harris came into some money this week. Oh, much money? Yeah, paid his back rent. Yes, he hasn't been... Uh, hello, Quine. Yeah? Oh, yeah? Well, look, uh, we're over to Rooming House. We got a lead on a guy named Willie Harris. Might be one of them. Yeah, well... Yeah, well, we wait. Yeah, they, they might just show you now. Okay, yeah. Now, the hold-up. Same M.O., only two men this time. You think Willie was one of them? Might be. If you don't mind, we're going to wait here in case he shows up. Staked around the block. I just talked to Quine. He spotted across the street in the alley. Did you find anything? Yeah. Slugs from a 38. Hmm? No gun. Say, it was a 38 that killed that bishop boy. Mm-hmm. I'd like to find some of that money. Shh. Huh? Somebody came in. Yeah, it's coming up here. Get over by the door. Don't move! <laughs> I got it. Here, here's your 38. Okay, okay, get up. Hey, what is this? Where's your partner? What do you mean? Eddie's dead, Jacobs is dying. Where's your partner? I don't know what you're talking about. Shake him down, man. Hey, hey, look. Can't still Wait a minute, will you? Here, Ben. Uh, it's a nice bundle of dough. I won it. I won it. You just held up a gas station on Lincoln Boulevard. No, I didn't. That kid in the grocery store died. Now, wait a minute, will you? Wait a minute. We got a dozen witnesses who can make an identification on you. I didn't shoot that guy in the grocery store. I I didn't shoot him. Who did? Oh, Frank. Frank shot him. Frank who? Frank Woodard. You and Frank held up that gas station? Yeah. Where's Frank now? He went home. 618 North Wilton. He was tired. He was going to take a nap. Get up. He said, get up. Hey, what? Grab what him, Matt. Grab him. Let go. Will you let go? Sit there to get under the pillar. And a bundle of dough. Uh, you busted get me. Get up. You're not. All good. right, all right. Get your pants on. All right. We'll tell you where I was, Willie. Yeah, Willie. Look, you can't prove Can nothing. It? Come on, let's go. What about a shirt? Leave the pajama top on. We'll give you a whole new outfit downtown. Okay, okay. Any trouble? No. You can have them, Quine. Oh, here. This is yours. What for? Well, 60 cents. Matt and I got 96 in that last round of rapid fire. You had a 98. <laughs> 
the lineup, where before you pass the innocent, the vagrant, the thief, the murderer. Listen again next week when we again bring you the lineup. May I have your attention, please? <laughs> you people out there on the other side of the wire in the audience room, may I have your attention, please? Thank you. My name is Greb, Sergeant Matt Greb. I'll explain the lineup to you. Each of the suspects you will see will be numbered. I'll call off a number, their name and charge. If you have any questions or identifications, please remember the number assigned to the prisoner, as I call his name. At the end of each line, when I ask for questions or identification, The Lineup, starring Bill Johnstone as Lieutenant Ben Guthrie and Wally Mayer as Sergeant Matt Greb, is written by Blake Edwards with music by Eddie Dunstetter. Featured in tonight's cast were High Everback, Gil Stratton, Vic Perrin, Sam Edwards, Jack Moyles, Gene Bates, Herb Butterfield, Tony Barrett, and Virginia Gregg. The Lineup is transcribed in Hollywood by Jaime Del Valle. CBS will bring you General Dwight D. Eisenhower's first report to the American people tomorrow evening. This CBS broadcast will be General Eisenhower's public review of his recent visits to the Atlantic Pact Nations, where he laid the groundwork for rearmament under his direction as Supreme Commander. Earlier tomorrow evening, Edward R. Murrow and Hear It Now will bring you a picture of Detroit, Arsenal of the Republic, as it girds for defense production. And for light entertainment, Jan Murray will be present with his songs for sale. Songs for Sale, Hear It Now, and General Eisenhower's Report will be heard tomorrow evening on most of these same CBS stations. Your favorite daydreams can come true if you save regularly with United States Savings Bonds. Use the payroll savings plan where you work or the bond-a-month plan where you bank. Buy United States Savings Bonds. Dan Coverly speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The lineup would air on CBS Radio until February 20th, 1953. After I came back from RKO, I was producing here and I got the idea I wanted to do something about Texas because my wife was from Texas and I would go down there and see her family. I thought that would be a good reason to go down and write it off too as well. Mm -hmm. So I got the idea that maybe we could do a show on the Rangers. And I knew nothing about the Texas Rangers except their reputation. And I went down to Austin and met Homer Garrison, who was then 
the chief of the Rangers, Colonel Homer Garrison, and he was rather intrigued by the idea of doing radio shows on the Texas Rangers. He didn't know me from Adam, and I didn't know him either. He said, well, you talk to my PR man, whose name is Roy Wade. See what he thinks. I met him, and he said, well, let's go to lunch. He said, by the way, I'm representing another fellow who's running for Congress. Do you mind if we, the three of us join each other and have lunch? I said, no. And we went to lunch. He said, this is Lyndon Johnson, Stacy, Stacy Keach, Lyndon Johnson. That was the man he was representing going to Congress at that time, who was told me, by the way, Lyndon Johnson said he was going to be president someday, and I thought he was a little wacky. <laughs> but we started to do some research on the Rangers. Colonel Garrison said, we have a retired captain who was just recently retired. He's a famous captain of the Texas Rangers, Gonzalez, G-O-N-Z-A-U-L-L-A-S. And they call him Lone Wolf. And he said, he would like to be your technical consultant. And he, we think you should have somebody who knows a lot about the Rangers' work. So I met him and we just hit it off. And he was with me for seven or eight years after that. We traveled all over Texas. Our riders would go down and we'd cover cases and talk to the sheriffs. And the, every time we went down, the Ranger car would take us and there would be two or three other Ranger cars escorting us. We felt like we were having great security. And then we'd join up with some of the sheriffs and the constables and different places in Texas, and they'd tell us their stories. We had a writer named Joel Murcott, and Joel was a very prolific writer and a very good one. Did a, our, maybe our first 30 or 40 shows. Cap could never remember Joel Murcott's name. Cap had evidently had 31 gunfights in his day, but he was always remembering, he could remember every incident of the gunfight or the arrest, but he could never remember Joel Murcott's name. So finally one day we're driving along Murcott faced another constable and he said, this is Constable so-and-so and we had this gunfight over here and so forth. And this is uh, uh, Joel Burke. Let me ask you something, Cap. He said, what do you have to do, kill a guy to remember his name? <laughs> As the 1950s began, things were changing in the U.S. Frank McNamara and Ralph Snyder introduced a credit card with their diner's club card. For the first time, it made purchasing gas with plastic possible. Although TV was pulling audiences in record numbers, the network still had radio budgets and programming needs. With numerous stars jumping to CBS, NBC launched several small studio dramas. These programs were good deals for advertisers. Their cost per ratings point was much lower than orchestral and large variety shows. This is covered in detail in episodes 111 and 112 of Breaking Walls. One of these new NBC shows was a modern western called Tales of the Texas Rangers. It brought the Texas detective into the 20th century, covering close cases from 1928 to 1948. Tales of the Texas Rangers was created by Stacy Keach Sr. In the Ranger headquarters, there is a lie detector room. Very interesting. They have one-way mirrors. So the room is possibly 8 by 10 maybe 10 by 12, and the people would be brought in and the lie detector equipment would be put on them for perspiration, heartbeat, and then they would sit them in a big chair and we would watch these people being interviewed through this one-way mirror. It looked like a mirror to them. But we had a little amphitheater back there and our writers would go up there. Just amazing how 
you'd see human psychology work. One of the polygraph operators would act as a heavy, the villain. The other one would be the good guy. This fellow said, oh, if you're guilty, you're, we're going to get you by. He said, wait a minute, Joe, you know, he's a nice guy. Let's see. If, and they played these roles. It was amazing how well they convinced the suspects. But they would put them down in a chair, in the lie detector chair, and they'd say, now listen, if you're guilty, this lie detector is going to find out. If you're not guilty, by all means, take the test, because it will also show that you're innocent. Now, let's make a few little tests just in the meantime, just to see how the polygraph works with you. So they say, is your name Tom Smith? Yes. Did you ever drink a Coca-Cola? Yes. Did you kill Molly Jones? No. And they go back and forth and say, boy, you're really good. You really react very well to this. So anyhow, we'd like to try one more little test on you. This time we want you to lie. What do you mean, lie? We want you to lie. Don't tell us the truth. Now, here's a deck of cards, and we want you to take one of these cards. Don't let us see it. Draw the card. Keep it in your own mind. Put it under your legs so we can't see it. And then we'll ask you what the card is. But you lie. Don't tell us what the card is. So we all set. So, all right. Was it a club? No. Was it a spade? No. Was it a diamond? No. Was it a heart? No. Going back and forth. Finally, they say, was it an ace? No. Was it a king, queen, jack, ten? Finally, they he keeps saying no. And finally, is it the two? No. Three? No. Four? No. Two? No. Three? No. Four? No. Two? No. Three? No. Two? No. Three? No. It was a two of spades, wasn't it? Fella pulls it out. We saw more people confess right there that they did it. They were scared to death that this thing was really... Of course, they didn't know that all of those cards in the deck were two of spades. <laughs> and what they did watch was the, the polygraph watching what he said when it was a two of spades, and they watched just how it kicked up. The show starred Hollywood A-lister Joel McRae as Jace Pearson. McRae was an outdoorsman who owned a 3,000-acre spread in Southern California. He spent the second half of his career appearing almost exclusively in Western films. I believe that somebody up there likes all of us. And if that's our right place and we make the right moves to do the right things, we'll make it. And if it isn't right for us, we'll do something else. Yes. You know? You certainly kept persevering, though. You didn't quit, did you? No. I never thought of quitting. If I had, I would owe later, when I was successful, and there wasn't much chance of me having to quit, I said, well, if it ends tomorrow, I can go out on a ranch and still do a day's work and make a living, and I'll eat and sleep and be warm. Tales of the Texas Rangers debuted over NBC on July 8, 1950. Herb Ellis and Herb Vigran often appeared in character parts. Last week, did you guys play uh, Tales of the Texas Rangers? Was I the partner to Jay's? What was my name? <laughs> no. What was my name in the show? Well, I played oh, his was partner. was that him? Because I, I, I listened uh, what? to it. Well, who was his partner? Parley Bear was the sheriff? Parley was on it. Oh, well, then maybe that particular Jerry show... Jerry Hausner was on it, too, I think. Maybe that particular part. But I, I remember doing many, many episodes as his partner and being featured, uh, and by the way, that was, yes. That's who I was, Clay Morgan. 
Thank you. And that show was produced by Stacy Keats, the father of Stacy Keats, the actor, and his brother. While Jace Pearson used the same methods that had been successful for the Texas Rangers in the 19th century, he also relied on modern technology for crime detection. And it was rather interesting because we had to get permission for every show from Texas, okay or not okay, or change this or that wasn't right or so forth, and we'd always get a, either a wire or a phone call, and they never turned us down on that one either. of the Texas Rangers starring Joel McRae as Ranger Jace Pearson. Another authentic reenactment of a case transcribed from the files of the Texas Rangers. and places in the following story are fictitious for obvious reasons. The events themselves are a matter of record. Beginning today and continuing all week, there are many new programs returning to the NBC schedule. And you'll find a couple of your old favorites in new time periods as well. Today, Theater Guild on the Air returns for the fall season on NBC with a special dramatization of The Wisteria Trees, co-starring Helen Hayes and Joseph Cotton. Later, Dragnet, the authentic stories of your police force in action, begins a new series of Sunday evening broadcasts. On Tuesday, NBC's own Red Skelton returns to the fold to bring you 30 minutes of his hilarious antics. And the same day, Tuesday, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis also begin a new series on the NBC radio network. Thursday evening, you'll find truth or consequences on a new day at a new time, too. So better check your local newspaper for the correct time of all these wonderful programs on this NBC station. Remember, today, hear both Theater Guild on the Air, co-starring Helen Hayes and Joseph Cotton, and Dragnet for action-packed listening on NBC. Now, today's Tales of the Texas Rangers. And now, from the files of the Texas Rangers, the case called Drive-In. It is 9.45 on a Saturday night in July 1947. At a drive-in theater three miles outside Corvell, Texas, a boy in his late teens walks between the rows of cars on the darkened lot and approaches an old convertible park near the exit. In the driver's seat of the convertible, a 15-year-old girl sits watching the movie. What's Don't Did say ready to leave? Turn it off. Turn it off. Turn it off. Time to be watching a movie now. You might have to start driving any minute. They're really getting ready to leave, huh? I don't know. You should have left 20 minutes ago. Oh, maybe they want to see the show again. It's a good picture. Oh. Hey, sure, it's a pretty car they got. They ought to have a lot of money. What do you think I picked it? How much money do you reckon we'll get from her? How do I know? You said if we used to get $100, we could get married. Yeah. Maybe if we used to get $200, we could go to Dallas for a honeymoon. Could we, Al? Sure, baby. Because I've never been to Dallas. Uh, you got your gun ready to use on there? Will you quit your yapping? Okay, okay. Don't you trying to make sure everything go good? You sound like you don't even want me here. Yeah, sure I do, baby, you know that. Done nothing but yell at me the whole night. I've been trying to think. This thing has to go off just right. Now, you know what you gotta do. Sure. 
Reckon you shoot them people? Maybe. They get me out of trouble. Wish I could be there when you use the gun. You'll scare them so bad they won't... Here they come. Oh, sure it's them? I've been watching the car, haven't I? Hey, this is exciting. I can hardly wait. Now, don't forget, baby. Uh-huh. Pick me up at that spot I showed you. And uh-huh. remember, don't drive too close behind us. Okay, Hey, mister! Mister! What's the trouble? Uh, my, my car's out of gas. Can you give me a ride to the nearest filling station? Well, I reckon we can. All right with you, Ruth? Oh, sure, Jim. Hop right. <laughs> in the back, son. We'll take you. Oh, thanks a lot, mister. Well, sure glad you stopped me. My girl and me, we've been waiting 20 minutes for someone to come out. Oh. <laughs> Did you like the picture? What? Did oh, 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 yes, ma'am. Real good. We thought so, too. We almost stayed to see you a second time. You reckon I can turn on my headlights now? Eh, way they make you keep your parking lights on on these drive-ins, I almost miss seeing you standing there. Sure lucky for me you didn't. My girl's supposed to be home early. Gosh, I feel like kicking myself letting the car run out of gas. Eh, maybe oh. we can bring you back to the filling station. Might be a long time before you get a ride otherwise. Oh, you don't have to do that, mister. Oh, we'll be happy to do it. Oh, we, honey. Oh, of course you will. <laughs> I remember how it was. My wife's folks were always reading the riot act to me for bringing her home late. We didn't have driving movies. Shut then. up, mister. Hmm? What? Why? When you get to the crossroad, turn left, away from town. What? Do like I say. You don't, I'm going to put a bullet right in your head. Oh, Jim. Now, Jim, look here, Quit that talk. Uh-huh. Now, turn left. Oh. Just so you know, I ain't fooling. I'm clicking this hammer back. Oh, you hear it, mister? What is it you want? You find a... You won't get away with this, son. I told you to quit talking. You're making a big mistake. Why don't you... Shut up! Jim, don't argue with him. Do what he says, please. She's right. You want to live, you do just what I say. Now drive faster. I said faster. How how much further you want me to go? I'll tell you when to stop. I have to press that gun so hard in the back of my neck. I'm keeping it right where it is. Jim, please don't argue with him. This is far enough. Stop. Now we're all getting out. Out this side, lady. <laughs> I still got this gun cocked, mister. Now throw your wallet and purse into the car, both of us. Throw them in, I said. Okay. Now start walking down the road. You look back once and I'll plug you. Now, 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 just hold on my arms, honey. It'll be all right. Keep walking. Half an hour later, the couple stopped the passing truck, which took them into the sheriff's office at Corvell. The sheriff, who was in another part of the county, was notified. He ordered an all-points bulletin to be sent out on the stolen car and requested the Texas Rangers to begin the investigation. Upon arrival at the sheriff's office, Ranger Jace Pearson began taking statements from the two victims. Now, I'd just like to go over a few things to make sure we have them straight. Mr. Harper, you say you had $37 in your wallet? Yeah, that's right, Ranger. And Ruth had five in her purse. Well, five and some change, Jim. It was closer to six. Uh, the boy who robbed you, all you remember about him is that he was heavy set and not too tall. Well, I know he was shorter than Ruth, and she's five foot eight. Wish we could tell you more, but it was pretty dark the whole time he was with us. Couldn't get a good look at his face. Ranger, I just remembered something about him I forgot to tell you before don't know if it'll help. Anything will help, Mrs. Harper. Well, I did notice that he had his sleeves rolled up right to his shoulders like he was trying to show off his muscles. I see. Now about this girl the fellow said he was with. Did you... Oh, hello, Sheriff. Well, howdy, Jason. 
Folks, I'm sorry I wasn't here sooner, but at least I got some good news for you. Oh, what's that, Sheriff? They found your car just a few minutes ago. Oh, that's a relief. Where'd they find it, Sheriff? A couple of miles from where the holdup took place. Just got it on the radio as I was driving up. I told him I'd relay the message on to you. Well, can someone take us out there? Well, that won't be necessary, Mr. Harper. They're towing it in right now. Towing it in? Yes, ma'am, so they won't destroy any evidence. Well, I'm sure glad we've got it back. The fellow that held you folks up, was he working alone? Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Harper think there was a girl in it with him. That's right. But like we told the ranger, we didn't see her. She probably followed and picked him up after he ditched your car. That sounds like the tow truck coming in now. Yeah, that's him. I expect we better get out there. I sure hope that little rat didn't get my typewriter. Typewriter? Yeah. I was bringing it home to do some work over Sunday. Put in the back seat of the car when Ruth picked me up at the office. Well, it won't be long before we know if he took it. <laughs> that boy. Seems so nice at first. Oh, it's just no telling about people, is there? No, ma'am. Especially <laughs> that one. Back of my neck still hurts where he was pressing the gun against it. Oh, that kid's vicious. Real vicious. We'll do everything we can to catch him before he gets rough with anybody else. Uh, the car is right over there. I'll make you out a receipt for it. Well, you have to keep it here? Only for tonight, till the lab has a chance to go over it. Uh, we'll see that you get a ride home, folks. Uh, thanks, Sheriff. Uh, let me see. Oh, wait a minute, I... Mr. Harper. Hmm? Don't touch the door handle. It hasn't been gone over for prints yet. Oh, oh sorry, Ranger. It's all right. I'll just shine my light through the window here. Oh, just what I was afraid of. Typewriter's gone. Oh, dear. I don't suppose you know the serial number. No, but I reckon I've got it at home with a guarantee. We'll alert dealers and secondhand stores in case he tries to sell it someplace. Uh, honey, didn't you have a package in there, too? Oh, why, yes. I almost forgot about it. Uh, a couple of pairs of stockings I bought this afternoon. Where'd you buy them, ma'am? Hugger's dress shop. You mind telling us the brand and size? They were Mo Judd, size ten and a half long. You know if any other place in town carries that brand of stockings? No, I'm sure they don't, Ranger. Thanks, ma'am. I reckon we can let you folks go home now. Mr. Harper, will you phone us as soon as you find out that typewriter number? Sure will, Ranger. I'll get my deputy to give you a ride. Uh, Sandy? Yeah? Would you take Mr. and Ms. Harper home in your car? Right. Uh, thanks. Come on, honey. Oh, I sure will be glad to get home. What do you want to do tomorrow, Jace? Check with the manager of the drive-in theater? Yeah, I'd also like to talk to the owner of the shop where those stockings were bought. Well, Jace, I can understand why you wanted that typewriter number, but why did you want to know all about the stockings? It's just possible that the girl in that hold-up team will come in and try and exchange the stolen stockings for a different size. She wouldn't have to change them if she wears the same size as Mrs. Harper. I don't think she does. The boy who robbed the Harpers is short. From what they said about him, I doubt if he's the type who'd go with a girl taller than he is. Certainly not one as tall as Mrs. Harper. Well, suppose the girl is short. She could still take a large stocking size. Yeah, but the ones Mrs. Harper bought were ten and a half long. Nobody but a tall person would want to wear them. You could be right, Jason. I'll phone the woman who owns the dress shop first thing in the morning. It's only a chance, but I believe it's worth a try. It was in 1950 that NBC appointed advertising executive Sylvester Pat Weaver as president. He quickly expanded over a dozen NBC radio shows for TV, simulcasting or adapting the two. Television revenue jumped 190% for the year. Two years later, radio ratings had plummeted. Only four shows had ratings higher than 10. Tales of the Texas Rangers wasn't one of them. On September 14, 1952, this episode was broadcast. Entitled Drive-In, it would be the last of the series. Now, here is an important announcement from the star of our show, Joel McRae. Folks... 
Tonight marks the concluding performance, for a while at least, of Tales of the Texas Rangers. We've really enjoyed bringing these stories to you and hope that someday we'll be back with you again. To NBC and its affiliated stations, to Colonel Homer Garrison, Jr., Chief of the Texas Rangers, to Captain M.T. Lone Wolf Gonzalez, our technical advisor, and to all the Texas Rangers and members of the Department of Public Safety, our grateful thanks. And we're particularly grateful to those of you who've taken the time to send us your cards and letters. After all, they are the only sure way of telling that you liked our show. Thanks, folks. Thanks a lot. Good night. You have just heard Joel McRae in another authentic reenactment of a case from the files of The Texas Rangers. Technical advisor was Captain M.T. Lone Wolf Gonzalez of the Texas Rangers. This story was transcribed and adapted by Charles E. Israel, and the program was produced and directed by Stacy Keach. Hal Gibney speaking. Tonight, attend the premiere of Theater Guild on the Air over NBC. Another case was very interesting with Cap Gonzalez. He was searching for uh, somebody who had committed a murder. And he went to this county, this constable with whom he had worked for years, on and off, was uh, working with him. And all the evidence was pointing more and more to this constable. that He might have been the subject of an arrest. And Cap didn't know quite what to do. Well, anyhow, Cap went to a man in the area, as a tip-off, told him that the constable had committed this murder. And the next two days, Cap goes back there, the man is dead. Found in the river with a weight around his neck. So Cap told the constable that he was under arrest. And the constable said, what do you mean? He said, we've worked together for years. He said, you're under arrest for murder of this guy. Well, anyhow, to make a long story short, he was tried and convicted and sentenced to death. And those days, Ma Ferguson was the governor of Texas. And there was a lot of publicity about Cap testifying against him and actually sending him to the electric chair. So he went to Ma Ferguson and asked Ma Ferguson if she would please give him a, a what do you call it? Commute the sentence, right, to life imprisonment. So she refused to do it. And the man's in death row, and I've seen death row many times at Huntsville, what they do, they keep you in a cell at the far end of the electric chair, and then the night that you're going to be electrocuted, they bring you down to the a room right down here next to the chair where you can hear the whirring of the motors and all that. Well, this man had called Cap in, and there was a lot of stuff in the paper about how bitter he was with Cap, and he called him in about a week before, and he said, I apologize for giving you such a bad name, and you were my friend, and I, I'm, I'm sorry that I said this. And he said, I want you to become a witness at my execution and a pallbearer at my funeral. Cap said, oh, I don't want to do that. He says, please. Well, the man had divorced with his wife, and they were estranged for a long time. The day of the electrocution, Cap 
came over, and they brought the man down from the far cell to the near cell, and he asked if he could have this picture that had, of his wife that he had in a leather frame that he had gotten just recently. Cap was amazed because they were estranged so long. They said, all right, let him have it. And inside the picture frame was a blade. And before he was taken, the electric, he cut his throat. And he was bleeding to death. This is a horrible story. Anyhow, the warden said, electrocute him. And they put him in the chair and electrocuted him. That never came out for years. We did that story. In 1955, Tales of the Texas Rangers moved into TV for CBS, starring Willard Parker and Harry Lauder. Mary, no! God, let like, go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, get away. no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome? and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Rochester, Dennis Day, Bob Crosby, and yours truly, Don Wells. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, every spring, as soon as the warm weather starts in California, Jack Benny and his gang take a day off and go out to the beach. As we look in on Jack's home, he and Rochester are preparing for this annual picnic. Rochester, have you got everything? I think so, boss. Towels, bathing caps, suntan oil. Uh-huh. Did you pack enough lunch? I put in some sandwiches, potato salad, pickles, celery, olives, and 60 hard-boiled eggs. 60? How come we've got so many hard-boiled eggs? Don't you remember? You were faster than any of the kids on Easter morning. <laughs> oh, yes. I guess I was pretty lucky. Now, Rochester, I wonder if we should fill the thermos bottle with orangeade or lemonade. I'd suggest lemonade. That'll mix with anything. Look, we're just going to have soft drinks. <laughs> 
If I take a long, soft drink, it's not going to be used as a mixer. It's not? No. Okay, but when the musicians find out it's just plain lemonade, you're going to have another riot in cell block 11. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what happened. As Herb was saying, in those days, we were very, very, very busy in, in radio. When television came around, all of the writers and producers and directors from radio were the early pioneers of television. Like Jess Oppenheimer was the producer of Lucy. So we knew them all, and they didn't know where to go. And we'd say, hey, you know, how about it? He'd say, yeah, I got something coming up available next week. So I was very, very busy in the early days of television. So we just drifted with the people that we knew, and they felt comfortable with us. I'll tell you, one of the saddest days of my life was when they changed from a six-day-a-week to a five-day-a-week. The early television shows, most of them would shoot for three days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Now, all of a sudden, there's a five-day week. Now, you can't do two shows a week. You can do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Now, the Thursday and Friday one's going to carry over to Monday. Now, you can't do Monday, Tuesday. Oh, boy, that was terrible. During the 1954-55 season, Jack Benny had radio's highest-rated show with a rating of 5.8. On TV, his rating was 38.3. America's cars and gas stations reflected the space age. Display windows often looked like rocket tail fins. New canopies featured folded plate roofs, and boomerang-shaped supports reflected the interest in aeronautics. The radio networks were attempting to figure out how to keep the listening audience interested. NBC launched Monitor in June of 1955, and that fall, CBS turned My Son Jeep and Yours Truly Johnny Dollar into 15-minute weeknight serials. For the men and women like Herb Ellis and Herb Vigran, the new era offered insecure uncertainty. I also think you have to remember the early days of television were half hour cowboy or sitcom. So if you had, let's say, 30 half hours of shows, let's say five shows in one night, seven days a week is 35 shows, okay? Ultimately, they started the live Playhouse 90s, Pontiac Playhouse, and so they found the hour format. And then they went to the hour show. So we're talking about now actors and craft, guild people, where there used to be all of these different crews working on all these half-hour shows. All of a sudden, one whole crew and one whole bunch of actors cut disappeared, in cut in half. And then ultimately, hour and a half. And then huge sales of motion pictures to television. And you cut those hour and a halves by Boku, and you had nothing. Meanwhile, the Mutual Broadcasting System was the only major radio network without a TV footprint. Although Mutual had the largest total number of affiliates, for the first 18 years of their existence they operated as a cooperative and not a corporation. The 
General Tire and Rubber Company assumed ownership in 1952. But Mutual never had the revenue to jump into TV. One of the radio shows they did have was Family Theater. It was created by Patrick Payton of the Holy Cross Fathers. The show was planned as a rosary broadcast, but the networks refused such a narrow scope. So Father Payton made it a weekly drama, added the glamour of Hollywood, and saved the Christian message for the commercials. Mutual donated time under four conditions. The show had to be top quality, strictly non-sectarian, feature a film star, and Father Payton had to pay the production costs. Payton met Loretta Young, who advised him on how to approach A-listers. She became the first lady of family theater. Between 1947 and 56, there were 482 dramas broadcast. Few used religion of any kind in the plot. The May 11, 1955 episode was called Deadbeat. Family Theater presents Bing Crosby and Paul Pacerny. The Mutual Network, in cooperation with Family Theater, presents Deadbeat, starring Paul Pacerny. And now, here is your host, Bing Crosby. Thank you, uh, Tony Lafrano. Family Theater's only purpose is to bring to everyone's attention a practice that uh, really must become an important part of our lives if we are to win peace for ourselves Peace for our families and peace for the world. Family Theater urges you to pray, to pray together as a family. And now to our transcribed drama, Deadbeat, starring Paul Pacerny as Halsey and featuring Marjorie Bennett as Min. thing boils down to this. What do radio programs try to do besides sell things? They try to inform, educate, amuse, and otherwise entertain. Well, that's what I want to do with my story. That is the story I want to tell. The way I see it, it's informative and amusing. Well, sometimes I sit up in bed at night, kind of chuckle and say to myself, Halsey, that certainly is an amusing story. I live in Hollywood. Now, here's where the education thing comes in. You see, in a lot of places, the minute you say you're from Hollywood, they think you're either a big liar or a big star. Even in a refreshment establishment in Pasadena, a scant 12 miles away, I've witnessed much nudging with elbows and winking of left eyes on stating that I am a resident of Hollywood. Now, I don't work in pictures, nor do I work in television or in that other thing, radio. I don't even have a theater-connected job. And it's the same with a lot of other people who live in my hometown. The people in my story, however, all live in Hollywood. In spite of this, they are all normal, the kind you might expect to find in your own hometown. That is, with the possible exception of the woman my story is about. 
I met her during a coffee break. She was sitting at the counter in the heat joint right next to my gas station. She was kind of a frowsy-looking old gal, and I figured her as maybe one of the ex-glamour girls of the gold diggers of 1932 or one of the other old pictures. She was just sitting behind an empty coffee cup when I sat down in the empty seat right next to her. Honey. You talking to me? Oh, my goodness, no. The waitress. Oh, excuse me. Honey. Did you call me, ma'am? Yes, I, I wanted to... Oh, the other girl will take care of you. This isn't my section, ma'am. Oh, I want a second cup of coffee. The other girl won't give it to me because I'm a deadbeat. Now, I thought maybe you... Oh, sure thing. I guess we can stay in the traffic. <laughs> you? Huh? You want something? Oh, yeah, yeah, a cup of joe. Right. Uh, pardon me, ma'am, did, uh, did somebody call you a deadbeat? No. Then why do you say you're a deadbeat? Because I am a deadbeat. Why do you ask? Oh, no reason. Just curious, I guess. Anything else? Oh, it's all for me. May I have a serviette? Uh, well, I... I don't know, ma'am. If it isn't on the menu, I suppose I can ask the chef. No, no. <laughs> a serviette is a napkin. Oh, a napkin. Here you are. Thank you. Forget it. You want anything else? Let me know. Oh, a nice girl. <laughs> oh, are you? Yeah, I guess she is. Hey... Look, why do you call yourself a deadbeat? Because that's what I am. I usually try to avoid paying for what I get. I don't work. And I don't expect to be working. That makes me a deadbeat. Well, I suppose that's right. Why do you look at me so strangely, young man? Well, maybe I just don't understand. Well, it's this way. I live on a pension. Old age, you know. Uh-huh. And goodness knows it's difficult. It's not very much, you know. So I've heard. Well, I live on a pension... Which is a handout, in a way. And I, I don't work simply because there's no job for which a, a broken-down glamour girl oh, suit Oh, no, I wouldn't say that. Mm, well, that's what I am, all right. But even if there were a job for me, I'm not so sure that I'd take it. No? It's gotten to be a sort of game with me. Oh, all this must be boring you terribly. Oh, no, no, not at all. Don't you have to go back to work? Oh, the gas station? I own the thing. Besides, we haven't got enough business to keep one man busy. Maybe a deadbeat myself before long. You, um, you might be able to teach me something. Business is bad? Oh, that's a shame. What's this about making it a game? Uh, want your coffee, sir? Well, uh... I believe I'll have just a little more if you don't mind. Oh, now, really? It would be amazing how these girls keep themselves so pretty, in spite of all the hurry and hard work, isn't it? Amazing, just amazing. And you, sir, would you care for a warm-up, too? Oh, no, thanks. Amazing how we keep so pretty. It's a big black lie, but I love it. Come to think of it, it was a lie. I don't think that's right. Not a lie at all. I really think they do a splendid job of keeping themselves fresh and nice-looking. You know, this is very trying work. Have you ever waited on tables? Well, if you were so sincere about it, why did you wait till she had the coffee pot in her hand before you said we it? We deadbeats never waste a thing. <laughs> that wasn't flattery. It was a sincere compliment. I just saved it till I thought it would do the most good to <laughs> the most people. Well, I can't uh, see anything wrong with that, I suppose. You either have a lot of mature understanding or a very charitable and forgiving nature. <sighs> have you got a cigarette? That was the way she looked to me, casting her bread upon the waters and every single slice having a hook in it. I just couldn't figure her out at all. 
After about a half hour, she looked up at the clock, gathered up a big shopping bag from under the counter, and we left. Well, it was certainly nice talking to you, Mr. Uh, Halsey. My friends call me Min. Well, you can call me Bill. Uh, Min, is that short for Minerva? No, just a nickname. Okay, Min. Oh, how I dread that walk up the hill. Oh, do you live up on the hill, do you, huh? It's hard enough without a heavy parcel, and I... I, I don't suppose you have a car. Well, no, not here. I, I ride a trike to work. A trike? Well, that's what I call it. It's a three-wheel motorcycle. Well, that's it right over there. Oh, yes. I use it when I deliver a customer's car so that I can, you know, have something to ride back in. Well, it's sure been nice talking to you, man. Just, j- just a minute, Bill. Huh? Is it very exciting riding a motorcycle? Mm, no, not too much. Not a three-wheeler, anyway. My late husband always wanted to ride one. You know, when he was younger, he looked a lot like you. Quite a handsome man. Are you trying to say you want to ride home on this sickle? Well, as long as you've been gallant enough to offer. It is quite a hill. And with this heavy package... Now, just a minute. I remember saying it was nice talking to you, but I don't remember offering you a lift home. Besides, you wouldn't look very dignified sitting up there on that box at your age. <laughs> Might be fun, though. I believe I'd like it. Now, look, I I can't afford to be running a taxi service, you know. You know, I live in rather a large place, Bill. I could introduce you to some of my friends there. The other tenants, you know. So? When they see what a charming and thoughtful gentleman is operating such a very convenient filling station, they would probably be more than happy to patronize you. More than happy. Okay, men, get on the sickle. Oh, right up on the front. That's right. (laughs) This is going to be quite thrilling. You know, there's really no reason why you should be having trouble with your business. From 1959 to 1966 or 7 or 8, there was a tremendous unemployment. I remember sitting at the Brown Derby with McDonald Carey. We had done a Jason, and uh, Ricardo Montalban came by and sat down, and they were talking about how they were being asked to take a cut. This is about 1952 or 3 that they were being asked to take a cut. The producers already started to cut down on the wage scale. And the scale that Ricardo Montalban was being asked to work for was a scale that I had finally worked myself up to. And I said, holy cow, if if McDonald Carey and Ricardo Montalban are going to be asked to work for that kind of money, where do I have to go back to the $65 a day minimum? And it, boy, it happened. They just went right down the toilet. What I mean, happened is that they used to call these little bits that we played, like uh, that went for a day or two or with two, three, four pages, they called them cameos and they'd give them to a star. Well, it turns out that Min's place is not an apartment house, which is what I think it's going to be. Instead, I find myself in a boarding house of which she is the owner. And of all her wonderful friends who would be more than pleased to buy gasoline from such a charming fellow as I, only one has a car. And that turns out to be a 1928 Essex Super 6, which is up on blocks in the backyard due to a slight mechanical difficulty, which is namely no engine. Meeting her tenants gave me a rough idea of why the old lady was a deadbeat. There were three of them. There was Alfred Lyons, an unemployed technical illustrator... Well, yes, old man, I suppose there are jobs about, but I'm an artist, you know. Need something truly creative. And really, old man, doing exploded drawings of aircraft parts, it's not what you call inspiring. 
Doing it for any period of time could ruin an artist, you know. Then there was Tina, a good-looking and also somewhat unemployed young lady in her late 20s, possessed of charm, hopes for a rich husband, and a sour grapes attitude. If a girl's going to fall in love, she might just as well fall in love with a man with money. Don't you agree, Mr. Halsey? Oh, I had my fling at the picture business, but frankly, I'm glad I didn't make it. In fact, I wouldn't take a picture contract now if they handed me one on a platter. So you're in petroleum. The oil business sounds so much more fascinating than pictures. You married, Mr. Halsey? The other tenant was the only one who paid anything. Her name was Mary. Mary writes some of the prettiest little poems you ever want to hear, Bill. Oh, a poet, huh? Oh, well, I, I write a little poetry, but they don't publish very much of it. I do sell a short story once in a while. Oh, and fine short stories they are, too. Mary always pays her rent. Oh, no. Last year, what I paid you just managed to cover the property tax. But you more than make up for the difference in the kitchen. The kitchen? Uh, yes. I do all the cooking for the house. I never could get the hang of cooking myself. Speaking of cooking, I'd better go put the potatoes in the oven. Will you excuse me? Oh, surely. Oh, you're staying for dinner, aren't you, Mr. Halsey? Sure he is. And call him Bill, honey. Oh, now, wait a minute. I don't think I'd better do that. We so seldom have a guest. Now you won't disappoint us. Please. Well, I'm a, I'm a pretty big eater. Oh, then you'll be right at home with us. <laughs> well, then maybe I will. Home cooking might taste pretty good at that. Fine. What kind of a meat dish would you like? Oh, anything at all. It's all right with me. I think lamb chops might be nice this evening. Don't you, Mary? Mm-hmm. Sound all right to you, Bill? It sounds great. Mary... Why don't you and Tina run down to the market with our handsome guest and pick up a few chops and things? I'll watch the potatoes. I should have seen it shaping up. Things might have been a whole lot different if I'd followed my natural inclination, which was to put my money in my mouth for safekeeping and run like a deer from the wolf pack. But I didn't. Instead, Tina and Mary and I went to the market. And I pushed one of those little go-karts around while the girls about bought the store out flattered me till my ears turned red. It wasn't until after the shopping, picking up the tab for $11.86 and the dinner that my temper really began to catch up with me. A little more coffee, Bill. No, thank you. Oh, go on now. There's plenty. There should be. I bought four pounds of the stuff. Wish you'd bought some other brand, old man. This kind hasn't the bouquet. I picked it out, Alfred. Oh, (laughs) sorry, old girl. (laughs) Fine coffee. And go easy on that old girl stuff, will you? Don't you like my pudding? You hardly ate a bite of it, Mr. Halsey. Bill. No, it isn't. It's Mr. Halsey. By George. Chap seems to have gone sour. (laughs) All right, all right. I've been taken and nobody can say I didn't know what to expect. I just wasn't on my toes, that's all. Why, what do you mean? What do I mean? What do I mean? I could have eaten three bigger meals at the Brown Derby for what I paid for this meal. But, but we just didn't have anything in the house. We just didn't have anything in the house. Boy. And what was in that big grocery bag that men was toting up the hill? Will you answer me that? Crumpled newspapers. What? <laughs> that's right, old man. Just crumpled newspapers. Minnie gets rides up and down the hill with that package. Hasn't had to walk the hill in three years. Now, wait a minute. People see a poor old lady with what looks like a heavy parcel and, well, what would you do? Great Scott. Now I know why they call you Min. It's short for Minnie the Moocher. As a matter of fact, that's right. Deadbeat. 
You are the greatest collection of deadbeats since... I think you'll find the plural of that would be deadbeat, old man. No, he's right. It's deadbeat. I don't care what it is. You people are the greatest collection I ever saw. You're a very rude young man. I'm rude? Now, just wait a minute. You really shouldn't include Mary in your name, calling Bill. She... she works, you know. Well, she did as much shopping as Tina did. Well, I thought Tina had the money. Yeah, I'll bet you did. Oh, you really shouldn't call Mary a deadbeat old man? Uh, sick beat, perhaps. <laughs> you get that, Tina? Sick beat instead of Never dead? mind, Alfred. Never yeah. mind. May I just ask you why you came here, Mr. Halsey? He was just bringing me home out of the charity of his heart. Oh, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's have a little honesty around here this evening, shall we? Even if it's only for the record. You said you could introduce me to some potential customers, and in the position I'm in, I'll try anything. Bill's having trouble with his gas station. Oh, I'm sorry. You rotten luck, old man. Anything we can do? Oh, knock it off. Knock it off. You people can't even help yourselves, unless it's promoting yourself something for nothing. Afraid you've got his there, all right. He has not. Bill, I don't believe any human being likes to see another in difficult circumstances, especially such a fine young fellow as yourself. Oh, stop it, William. And what do you want, another cigarette? Of course, if there was something in it for us, perhaps we might be able to promote your gasoline station. Ha! But that's an idea. Oh, now, honey, really? No, no, I mean it. But take you, for instance, Tina. Well, what about me, for instance? Well, it might be a chance for you to meet some rich young man. What might be a chance? By working at the station, of course. Are you out of your mind? What? Tina working within striking distance of my cash register? Not on your life. Besides, I couldn't afford any extra help if I wanted it, which I don't. It's really a splendid idea. An attractive young lady certainly should help business. Or better yet, two of them. Two of them? Just a darn you minute. You mean me, men? Oh, I never thought of me doing it, too. I really don't know a thing about pouring gas or changing wheels or things. But you know, it might be fun. How about it, Chum? What kind of a clientele you got? Small. And you're not going to meet any of them anyway. Now, Bill, you can't close your mind to new ideas, you know. But what's in it for us? Nothing's in it for anybody. I keep telling you, Please, I... William, must you monopolize the conversation? But what's in it for us? Oh, bother. We can work out some system of sharing the profits, I suppose. But there aren't any profits to share. Share the profits. And I could rate a guy by the car he drives. Say, hey, I have a few poster ideas I could try. By George's gives a fella a chance to use his imagination. I believe I like it. Now back off. Back off, everybody. Get this straight. None of you. None of you are going... Uh, is, is going, old man. None is singular, you know. All right. Not a one of you is going to have anything. Get that. Anything to do with my station. So get that straight. Say it over to yourselves if you have to, but understand it. I don't want any of you around my gas station. Now, tomorrow, or ever. Well, I beat them solidly on that one. When I'm talking about them, that means I got a compromise. I arranged to cut them in on all new profits. But if there weren't any new profits, the whole deal would be off at the end of the month. The next morning, all I had was a new kind of trouble. Tina, the man wants me to put air in his tires. What do I do? Well, there's this little gadget that sticks out of the tire. Uh, you just take the air hose, put it on top of the thing, and fill the tire, that's all. But how much air do I put in? Well, I haven't quite figured that out myself yet. Oh, uh, just put enough in so it's as round on the bottom as it is on the top. 
Well, that sounds logical, all right. Is that what you've been doing? Well, that's what I did on the car just driving out now. It's wrong. Who's to know? No, 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 no. <laughs> Look, when a customer says he wants water in the battery, he does not mean tap water. He means distilled water. Well, how was I to know? Giving you a hard time, honey? Hi, dear. Oh, you girls are scaring away more customers than you're getting in. They'll all come back. You watch. Every single one of them. Not the sane ones. Sure they will. Look. Oh, great Scott, Tina. Where did you get those caps? Off the cars. They come back to get their caps. We sell them more gas. Clever, huh? You can't do a thing like that. That's stealing. Oh, we'll give them all back. Oh, I must have been out of my mind to let you two scatterbrained females within a hundred yards of this place. I don't think you're being very nice. Oh, give me strength. But if you'll only tell us what to do. All right, all right. Look, we'll have night school tonight after we close up. Now, take care of the customer. This one's Mary's. What's the difference? She takes the women and I take the men. Well, both of you take this one. You need the practice. Well, you don't have to get sore about it. Come on, kid. All right. If you'd only tell us what to do. I know, kid, I know. It takes all kinds of people to make a world. And they give the star like a top salary of uh, $1,000. $1,000. And, you know, we finally worked our way up to... Two, three, yeah. four, five hundred dollars a yeah. day. You know, how many days do you work? You don't so work they could that put many. the star's name on the marquee. There's one other thing to answer your question, too. As I said, I was so busy when television started. But suddenly, there was so much television going on out here that the actors in New York started swarming oh. out here. Well, now, okay. when the actors swarmed out here, the directors followed. And when all the directors came out here, they started using the New York actors had been... Their friends that they were familiar and with the, and comfortable And the guys with. who had been doing a lot of television, like me, suddenly, it ain't there anymore. Well, yeah. It was a very dry period That's that right. Herb's talking about. Very yeah. dry. It was tough. Yeah. I was lucky to have found cocaine and marijuana, and I was... <laughs> By the end of the first day, Tina had successfully bummed almost 200 cigarettes from the customers. Mary had had her feelings hurt about 14 times, either by irate customers or by me. And the proprietor of Halsey's gas station was by actual count $39.18 poorer than when we'd opened that morning. We had night school that night, and through some peculiar train of logic, which I'm still working on, it was decided that Min would come down and lend the girls the benefits of her vast automotive experience. For qualifications, she offered that her departed husband had once owned a Stutz Bearcat. After the night school, I was buttonholed by our advertising department, Alfred Lyons. Look at it. A thing of beauty. Well, it uh, looks swell, Alfred, but uh, we can't say a thing like that. Halsey's gasoline is atomically powered. Well, it's it's simply not true. Well, you don't like that one. Well, how about this one? Halsey's gasoline's got atoms in it. <laughs> like it? Well, I guess there's nothing wrong with that. Like the uh, artwork? Mm, very clever. And how about this one? Halsey's gas, good to the last drop. Hey, that slogan, it belongs to a coffee outfit. Oh, they don't use it anymore. <laughs> Here's the air, I think. Well, we won't use it till we're sure. You got any more? Oh, that's about all. Oh, I have a few ideas, of course. 
Ah, I say, old man, how about lending me your motorcycle tonight? Tonight? Yes, I, I'd like to get started with the posters, you know. <laughs> no time like the present. Well, uh, wouldn't you do better in the daytime? Uh, no, old man, I, I rather think I'd better do it at night. May, may I have the ignition keys? Okay, it's parked in the driveway. But I still think you'd do a whole lot better with the daylight... I knew something was wrong the next morning, even before I got to work. You see, people who drive cars don't usually line up at a gas station, especially in a town that's full of them. But they were lined up at mine, just patiently waiting for us to open up. It was about 2.30 in the afternoon before things began to slow down. I took time out to help Minnie count the take when the guy came in. He says he doesn't want any gas. He says he wants Halsey, and he doesn't look happy. Well, maybe I better take a look see. I'll come along, Bill. This the guy? Uh-huh. Um, what can I do for you, mister? You Halsey? That's right. Miss Lady, she in cahoots with you? Cahoots? You, uh... Oh, oh, did you uh, lose a gas cap, I bet, huh? Uh, Tina, Tina. I don't know what you're talking about with this gas cap business, but you'll know why I'm here when I tell you my line of work. My name's Grunion. I'm in the advertising business. Well, it's very nice to meet you, but uh, I don't really need any advertising right now, sir. You bet your sweet life you don't, but you just might be getting some in the papers when the sheriff comes into this thing. Sheriff? All I want to know is why you did it. Why I did what? What on earth are you talking about? Do you know men? I haven't the faintest. Not the you trying to tell me you don't know about the little campaign that's been going on for your station? What campaign? Bill, I think you've been the victim of some practical joke. Well, if so, ma'am, it's about the most expensive and I might say the most practical, practical joke I've ever seen. That is, if it doesn't land you all in the cooler. <laughs> Look, would you mind telling me what you're talking about? You really don't know, huh? I really don't know. Come on, get in the car. I'll show you. <laughs> He drove us up Coenga Boulevard, which connects with the Hollywood Freeway System to the San Fernando Valley. I looked out the window of the car and just sat there in a kind of stunned horror. On signboard after signboard, even on the ones advertising other stations, were little slogans. Halsey's gasoline's got atoms in it. Halsey's gas, the pause that refreshes. Halsey's gas, best by taste test. Halsey's Gasoline, the choice of... Hey, North... look at that one. Where? Too late. Claimed your gas was grown in California and picked at the peak of its tree-ripened perfection. Oh, no, no, no. I really believe you don't know anything about this. Goodness knows we wouldn't know anything about it if you hadn't been kind enough to bring it to our attention. You haven't seen anything yet. Oh, you mean there's more? And we're coming to it now. Ah. Yeah. There it is. That's the biggest signboard in Southern California, and the beer company that leases it pays plenty, too. You can take my word for that. Thing of beauty, huh? He'd taken the whole signboard with this one, and there was no mistaking from whom he'd taken it, because the original sponsor's name had been only roughly painted out. The sign read, What'll you have? Halsey's Gasoline. Finest gasoline served anywhere. After that, Alfred had used a touch of originality or maybe a qualm of conscience because he'd added 
Don't drink, Halsey's. Use it in your car. I think it's kind of pretty. Well, whoever did it shows he's got talent, all right. Look, sir, you're an advertising man. How much do you think it, it's going to cost to fix all this? Oh, ten, maybe twelve grand. I might be wrong, though. Don't think anything like this has ever happened before. Well, uh, there goes my business. Mm, tough luck. Of course, you might be free and clear legally if you can prove it is a practical joke. Well, I'm afraid I can't. Well, those are the breaks, I guess. Wait a minute, boys. Mr. Grunion, how do you feel about all this? Well, I was a little sore at first, but seeing all these signs again, frankly, <laughs> I think it's a laugh and a half. Would you happen to know who owns, uh, well, say, the beer company that pays for that sign? Well, I know the lady who's got the controlling interest. What kind of a person is she? Oh, I think she's a pretty good sport. Oh, I see what you're getting at. You want me to knock you down to the lady, huh? <laughs> if that means introduce, <laughs> I certainly do. Min, will you please stop trying to fix things? Not yet, Bill. I've got just one more little bit of dead beating to do. Then I may be through for life. Here's another one I can't quite figure out. Min talked to the lady, all right. And the lady not only thought it was funny... But she sent her own painters out to do the same kind of artwork on every other sign she had in the Hollywood area. But I still don't know who to call smart, Min or the lady who owned the signs. You see, the whole thing caused so much talk, her sales jumped 30%. <laughs> of course, we didn't do so bad, what with being able to open two new gas stations. So I guess everybody wound up ahead, and we're all making a living. And you might say living happily ever after. Me, the wife, and Tina and Alfred. But you know, sometimes I wonder. Maybe if Min wasn't having more fun when she was just a deadbeat. Uh, this is Bing Crosby again. You know, if you want to build a good brick house, you must use good bricks. For the house can't be any better than the material from which it's made. It's largely the same with a nation. A country is no better than its basic social unit, the family. In a sense, then, you could say a uh, family theater is on the air to build a stronger America. Or a stronger nation, because when the members of a family gather together to invite God into the family circle... They're bringing into their homes the wonderful, cohesive force of God's divine love. They are acknowledging the blessings they have received, and they are assuring themselves of God's assistance for whatever problems that might arise. Through prayer, family prayer, we gain help for the problems we have and the build altars between the members of the family. A girl named Rose, who lived in Lima, Peru, summed it up nicely with these words. Let us quietly rely on the assistance of God when danger threatens us and human help is wanting. For a strong, unified family, family prayer. For the family that prays together, stays together. More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of.
From Hollywood, Family Theater has brought you transcribed Deadbeat, starring Paul Pacerny. Bing Crosby was your host. Others in our cast were Marjorie Bennett, Charlotte Lawrence, Alec Finlayson, Julie Bennett, and Herb Vigran. The script was written and directed for Family Theater by Robert Hugo Sullivan, with music composed and conducted by Harry Zimmerman. This series of Family Theater broadcasts is made possible by the thousands of you who feel the need for this type of program, by the mutual network which has responded to this need, and by the hundreds of stars of state, screen, and radio who give so unselfishly of their time and talent to appear on our Family Theater stage. To them and to you, our humble thanks. This is Tony Lofrano expressing the wish of Family Theater that the blessing of God may be upon you and your home and inviting you to be with us next week when Family Theater will present Every Good Boy Does Fine, starring Maureen O'Sullivan. Jerry Lewis will be your host. Join us, won't you? Family Theater is broadcast throughout the world and originates in the Hollywood studios of the world's largest network, this is Mutual, the radio network for all America. Good morning. This is Dallas Townsend with the CBS World News Roundup. The Labor Department reports that consumer prices went up another 1% in June, the fifth straight month in which they've increased 1% or more. Fast-rising costs of gasoline and home heating oil were largely to blame. Inflation is still running at an annual rate of higher than 13%. What to do about standby gasoline rationing authority? That's the question now facing House Democratic leaders in light of an unexpected complication last evening. The bill was making good progress when the House approved an amendment introduced by Republican Benjamin Gilman of upstate New York. In the late 1950s, the U.S. was importing 350 million barrels of oil per year. By 1969, American domestic output of oil couldn't keep pace with increasing demand. In 1973, U.S. production had declined to 16.5 percent of global output. The costs of producing oil in the Middle East were so low that companies could turn a profit despite a U.S. tariff on oil imports. This hurt domestic oil producers in places like Texas and Oklahoma. The 1973 Arab-Israeli War and a simultaneous global recession made matters worse. The Nixon administration supported Israel in the conflict. It caused Middle Eastern countries to enact an embargo on the United States. Within one year, it quadrupled the price of oil. AAA reported that in the first week of February 1974, 20% of American gasoline stations had no fuel. Odd even rationing ensued. Vehicles with license plates having a last digit odd number could buy gas only on odd number days, while others could buy gas only on the evens. 
1974, the Emergency Highway Energy Conservation Act mandated a national speed limit of 55 miles per hour. Development of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve began in 1975, and in 1977 the Department of Energy was created, followed by the National Energy Act of 1978. In 1979, the Carter administration was getting its fair share of blame for continued inflation, and members of Congress were laying the groundwork for the 1980 elections. Meanwhile, Hyman Brown launched the CBS Radio Mystery Theater in 1974. The need to bring back radio drama was in me. Radio had become music and news and a service rather than an entertainment. Fortunately, Sam Diggs, who is the president of CBS Radio, and I, we were old friends, and we would kick this around at lunch once or twice every six or eight months. And then about a year or a year and a half ago, when I came to him with this idea of seven nights a week to create a habit once again so that the station that carries the drama can truly say, we're the drama station. Stations, as you know today, radio stations, are programs. A station plays a particular kind of thing. It's either all news or all rock. Here we are, back with something where the station can say, we are the drama station. You've got to give them a reason for this. The show would be a direct descendant of Inner Sanctum Mysteries. When the program debuted on January 6th, it did so as part of a new radio service called the CBS Drama Network. 218 stations from around the country began broadcasting the show. We broke the mold. Literally, that's the only way to bring something back. We're going to be on the air seven nights a week with a 53-minute complete mystery drama each night. Seven nights a week. Never in the history of radio broadcasting did anybody attempt to do a series seven nights a week. I didn't want to go back... I wanted to go forward. I felt that the dialogue patterns of 74, that the recording techniques of 74, that the whole style of relationship between actor and spoken word is different in 74, and it is. Episodes contained 45 minutes of drama with introduction and postscript. There would be five commercials for CBS and five for local stations, along with a seven-minute news bulletin. Writers like Ian Martin and Sam Dan were paid about $350 per script. Actors were paid a union scale of $74 per hour. Episodes were recorded in Studio G at the CBS Radio Annex on 52nd Street in New York. Mystery is a flexible word. It's the macabre, the suspense, the eerie, the unexplained, the unseen. We'll do ESP kind of things, the occult stuff that deals with outer space, maybe some science fiction, but no detective stories. I don't want to get into, uh, have to bog down into explanations and detective mysteries. I don't care if I don't explain to you the phenomena that we're dealing with. They're just tight, good mystery suspense stories. High radio drama has been dormant for 20 years, for a full generation. Now, in that period of time, what changes have taken place as far as radio drama that, as you conceive of it, is concerned? Well, first off, the whole production technique has changed. I'll be recording 
on equipment that didn't exist 20 years ago. I have a 16-channel console. I'll only use one or two channels, but I have 16 channels. The whole world of sound has changed. We can now put sound into cartridges. You don't have to spot a record. The cartridge hits the sound right on the button, the, the gunshot. We can make continuous loops now of street noises, of crowds, of backgrounds of all kinds, so that sound is better. All my music will be on cartridges. So I have no needle scratches. I have no surface noises to contend with. And then, of course, the whole world of tape recording changes. My actor, if he flubs a line, we stop, go back four speeches, and I edit it out afterwards. I don't like uh, the quality of the, uh, let's say, the, the railroad background. I add some more sounds to it when I re-record afterward. Although Mystery Theater won a Peabody in 1975, by its third year, CBS gave Brown the airtime but little money or anything else. Affiliates were free to tape delay or drop the show from its schedule at will without making any announcements to the listening public. In 1982, the show was on its last leg. On June 14th, Larry Haynes starred in The Woman Who Wanted to Live. Radio Mystery Theater presents... Tommy Grimes. How much power do any of us really have over our own destiny? Not much, I'm afraid. Seems to me that our only real power is over our response to the accidents of our fate. The problem is not to try to control what is outside ourselves so much as what is inside of us, which poses the sticky problem of ethics. Who among us knows himself enough to predict his own actions under unexpected and unfamiliar pressure? A forced choice of life or death, for example, of killing or being killed. But why? Why me? There's no reason to kill me. Him, maybe, but not me. Sure, there's a reason. I can't leave you here alive to blow the whistle on me. But I won't. I won't say anything. Would you take that chance? If you were me? But, please. I don't want to die. Neither do I. Our mystery drama, The Woman Who Wanted to Live, was written especially for Mystery Theater by Bryce Walton and stars Larry Haynes and Roberta Maxwell. I'll be back shortly with Act One. Hi, Brown, who used to do uh, In a Sanctum, has revived radio, or is, is trying to, with a show called the uh, CBS Radio Mystery Theater, I guess it is, which in format, basically, is, is kind of like the old In a Sanctum shows. It's more believable now and less ethereal than it was as in a sanctum and uh, we're doing mystery shows i've done two of them now 
I think they should catch on. I think there is a market for radio drama. Is there any problem in adjusting to well, radio I, I, drama I, I, again? I felt like I had never done a radio show in my <laughs> life because it had been 15 years, and I went in with great trepidation and said, my goodness, uh, you know, this uh, I, I'm going to have a script in my hand now. Uh, how will I handle it? <laughs> but it all came back, and it was fun. Boy, I really enjoyed it, and so do all of us who were from the old days, you know, Jackson Beck and Ralph Bell, and it was like old class reunion. It's marvelous. Have techniques changed? I'm talking technically as well as perhaps acting styles. No, acting styles haven't changed. The technical end of broadcasting uh, has changed a bit. Things are more electronic now than they were in the old days of radio. Most of your sound effects were done manually. And now they use cartridges. It's kind of a hard adjustment for us because we used to kind of time our dialogue with the sound effects man, and that was helpful. Do you have a live manual yeah. sound effects man there as well? Oh, yeah. You know, things like opening and closing a door and footsteps. You Carpets uh, still haven't arrived. <laughs> <in> <laughs> <room>. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awful. It always amazed me how little carpeting was used in the old <laughs> yeah. days. Because everything was footsteps. Yeah, well, of course, yeah. it has to be. You've yeah. got to be able to well, paint Well, that's the only picture. way you can convey movement from sure. one place to another. Sure. Are you going to go back to your gangster rules again now, Larry, or are you going to well, try to avoid uh, that? Well, <laughs> This format doesn't lend itself too much to gangsters as we well, know, you know them. Well, heavies, uh, let's say. No, they're not heavies. Most of the roles on, uh, if you're playing a lead, are sympathetic rather mm -hmm. than the villainous type. It is a night of thunder and rain and darkness. A night of fateful coincidences. A night that invites violence and vengeance, for its darkness hides Ray Barden, robber and man-killer. A few hours ago, Barden broke out of the maximum security prison at Browndale. Armed, wounded, deadly. He stumbles out of a forest of wild cypress onto a lonely stretch of coast road. There is almost no traffic. The only light visible for miles comes from a small garage and filling station. The attendant inside the station, a blonde young man, bends over the cash register, checking the day's receipts. Seven, eight, nine, and that's another ten. For a grand total of $53.61. Uh, huh. I didn't hear anybody drive up. No, nobody did. Oh, uh, ran out of gas, huh? Yeah, you could say that. How far to walk? Far enough. Boy, what a night to be... Oh, boy. A live one. Right. And don't push, Sonny, or I'll blow you away. For $53.61? For nothing. Okay, okay. I'll play. Watch that cannon, Bandito. My daddy once told me never point a gun at a guy unless you intend to use it. Good advice. He ever tell you to shut up? Yeah, so I... you better you... shut up. But just reach behind you to the sack of tires. Uh, this rack here? Yeah, that's the one. Now find the empty chain sack. That's it. I put the $53.61 in the sack. All right. I tossed the sack over here by the door. In the uh, good old days, you'd be robbing the rich and giving that to me. Yeah, maybe in an old movie. Okay, let's have the keys. What keys? To the Jeep out there. Oh, sure. 
They won't do you any good, though. Why not? Uh, the Jeep's had it. Rod's burned out. Yeah. Yeah, it's war surplus. Near burned out when I got it. <laughs> Mister, you won't get that Jeep out into the highway. Yeah, well, I'll find out. But first, you see that roll of friction tape on the shelf? Yeah, sure, I see it. All right, now take it and plaster up that big mouth of yours. <laughs> now, there's no reason And to... then I want you to lie belly down on the floor with your hands behind your back. Huh? What do you know? A, a second customer. When it rains, it pours. Hold it, kid. Don't trip. Yeah, no, you get some head. Too bad, Sonny. But better dead than dumb. Go right inside, lady. I said get in here. But just stay out of that handbag. Just want a cigarette, Mr. Barton. But it seems I left them in the car. Just stand right there. Or you'll blow me away, I know. You just gave me a demonstration. Is, uh, is he dead? What's it to you? I only thought if he needed help... All he needs is a funeral. He is dead, isn't he? All at once, gone. Just like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's how they go. That's how you did it. Why? Why do you have to kill? He was dumb. He thought you driving up drew my eyes away and he could push me. And you're not smart either. Just bad timing. Sorry about that. It's your funeral. Did you come in alone? You see anyone in the car? No. But a friend could have run off somewhere down the road to call the cops. I'm alone now. No friends, huh? Not a one. What a waste. A looker like you. Yeah, a real looker. It's too bad. That's why I'm not supposed to be smart. All blonde lookers have to be dumb. I knew a smart blonde once, a long time back. But she didn't have your style. Yeah. A real waste. But I've got to be on my way. So I'll take your car. You won't be needing it. But why? Why me? Why should you care when in a minute you'll be dead? But what reason? Him, maybe. But not me. I just want a cigarette, Mr. Barton. You're dumb. Same as him. Admitting you know me, know my name, and that's dumb. And I can't leave you here to blow the whistle on me. But I won't. Would you believe that? If you was me? You've got to believe me. I can't take that chance. Please. I I don't want to die. Neither do I. So, what's new? Well, some people don't seem to care much. But life started to be good to me. I, I care a lot. So do I. I'm out of the prison cage with a chance to stay out. That's the last break I'll ever get. I'm not leaving you here alive to bury me. No. I won't die. I won't. Oh, sure you will. We all will. Like you said, the timing's just a little off. I won't die now. Later, maybe. Any time later. But not now. I just, uh, do us both a favor, huh? Don't fight it. It can be quick and easy, but if you fight it, it can get all messed up. I just step back there on the other side of the window. You're weird. You're going to kill me anyway, and you're giving me orders. You're going to turn out the lights, lock the door. You want me out of sight of anyone who might look in through the window. You figure that'll give you a good run before anyone uncovers anything here, right? Shut up. Or you'll kill me? 
I should do you a favor. Walk to my place of execution. Assume my proper position. Die by the numbers with a smile. You're the type that have a body digging its own grave. All right. So have it your way. I will. I'm sorry to inconvenience you, Mr. Barden. I'll fight. I'll resist. And when it's done, you'll have to drag me where you want me. That won't be easy, will it, Barden? With that bum arm, losing what's left of your blood? You can hardly drag yourself around. I'll manage. Then what? Then what? I think there is something so special between the listener and the other side of the microphone in the studio. Very special. I don't feel I'm talking to two men now. I feel I'm talking to a whole world. All of the people that you have created for me because of what you're doing. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater lasted until December 31st, 1982, closing down major network dramatic radio in the 20th century. Hollywood, California, the Lux Radio Theater presents Herbert Marshall and Margaret Sullivan in The Petrified Forest with Eduardo Cianelli. Lux presents Hollywood. Week after week, these programs come to you, ladies and gentlemen, because week after week, you make them possible through your loyalty to our products. And the Lux Radio Theater is the means our sponsors take of showing you their gratitude. Starring for you tonight are Herbert Marshall, Margaret Sullivan, Eduardo Cianelli, and Donald Meek. You will hear from two special guests, Charles J. Smith, superintendent of the Petrified Forest National Monument, and Nick Janios, manager of that famous movie restaurant, the Café de Paris at 20th Century Fox Studios. Our music is directed by Louis Silvers, with our entire production in the hands of that master showman, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Cecil B. DeMille. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. The city of Baltimore gave us the Star-Spangled Banner. It also gave us a Star-Spangled group of theatrical personalities who assembled there just five years ago under the banner of the University Players. At that time, they were an unknown collection of stage-struck youngsters intent on making good. Their leading man was Henry Fonda, and their ingenue, a little miss from Virginia named Margaret Sullivan. They remained in Baltimore 17 weeks, employed by an optimistic producer who paid them $10 a week and meals. This year, as the star of Stage Door, Margaret Sullivan returned to the same city and to the same theater, rounding out a five-year campaign and a burst of glorious success. When Margaret was in college, her English professor returned an essay she had written with a brief but uncompromising comment, for heaven's sake, stop acting. Margaret was just stubborn enough to ignore him, reasoning that a girl must have some fun. She's been acting ever since. Now, this show replaced the Lux Radio Theater for the summer. Coast to coast, it aired Pacific Coast 7 o'clock. Bethel Meriday was the show. 
It was forecast was a what we now know as pilot. As somebody of a prospective sponsor like that show, they'd buy it for the next week. Walked into the studio, and now I'm aware of all of these radio actors whom I was in such awe of. And I realized from reading the script that I had the second biggest part. It was Bethel, and it was Charlie Hatch. Mr. Keezer was the third largest part. The rest is supporting cast. And I look, and here is Lorene Tuttle, and Paula Winslow, and Norman Field. And I realized back, they're supporting me. I have much bigger parts than they do. Walked in, and Tracy or Corwin introduced me to all these people that I was so happy to meet, and... Uh, uh, Mr. Keezer, Howard De Silva, and then they introduced me to the lady who was going to play Bethel, the star of the show, the lead, and this lady's name was Margaret Sullivan, the supreme actress of the Broadway stage and a few pictures, very, very big, and I am doing the lead opposite Margaret Sullivan, coast to coast. It went on the air, everybody heard it. And overnight, my name was known in radio. Overnight. Fly me to the moon and let me play among the stars. Next time on Breaking Walls, we stop off for lunch at the diner. While eating, we'll share Heartland America stories with some of radio's biggest legends. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg, as well as articles from the Association for Convenience and Fuel Retailing, Family Tree Magazine, NationalParkService.org, Newsweek, and the Smithsonian Magazine. On the interview front, Virginia Gregg and Lorene Tuttle spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Hyman Brown, Larry Haynes, Vincent Price, and Rudy Valley spoke with Dick Pertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these full interviews at goldenage-wtic.org. Herb Ellis, Byron Kane, Stacy Keach Sr., and Herb Vigran were with Spurvac. For more information, go to spurvac.com. Bing Crosby and John Scott Trotter spoke with Same Time, Same Station. Lucille Ball was with both Dick Cavett and Joan Rivers. Orson Welles with Johnny Carson. Al Hodge with Richard Lamparski. Vic Perrin with Neil Ross for KMPC. And Joel McRae was interviewed by Al Greenberg for Orco Development. Selected music featured in today's episode was Route 66 by Nat King Cole. Deep Night by Rudy Valley. Lesmer's Wedding by Andre Moisan, Living Without You by George Winston, and Fly Me to the Moon by Julie London. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio drama set in 1835 New York City. It will be available everywhere you get your podcasts and at burninggotham.com. A special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, please go to passdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurback. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network.
Breaking Walls Episode 119 will continue our Americana miniseries at the diner, so bring your appetite. We'll get our fill of radio stories from some of the best men and women who ever worked in the medium. This episode will be available beginning September 1st, 2021, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So until September 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls Episode 118, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.